Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. Guys, I wanted to give you all a look inside my newest book, Fast This Way. And people have been asking to hear more from me on my show, but the show's here to learn from guests. So today, I turn the tables on myself for a special episode of Bulletproof Radio where I'm the guest. And to do that, I've invited back one of my all-time favorite guests to interview me about topics in my book. Laura Logan has been a professional journalist and war correspondent for nearly three decades, including a long stint at 60 Minutes. And she's done award-winning reporting for major news networks and still does it today. This is an epic and a long interview on Bulletproof Radio. You're going to learn a lot about fasting, but you're also going to learn a lot about things that aren't related to fasting because Laura and I just go on this amazing, deep, awesome conversation that I think only a real journalist could have drawn out. Long episode. You'll probably want to listen to it in a couple pieces. Enjoy. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today is a chance to turn the tables on myself. After almost 800 episodes, I've interviewed all kinds of cool people. And one of my all-time favorite interviews was with Laura Logan, who's a famous reporter who has a show on Fox Nation now and has been a journalist on 60 Minutes, CBS, and years of being a great journalist. Um, she was on episode 496, but I asked her to come in as a professional journalist to interview me about the new book, Fast This Way. Uh, rather than me just talking, it's always better when there's a communication. And I'm like, well, who's better than a world-class journalist with an awesome story who's had award-winning reporting? So I'm doing my best to deliver cool fasting stuff for you. And what I like about Laura most of all is she says, I don't care about ideologies. I don't care about political parties. I care about the truth. And she's a true journalist uh, and a truly curious, awesome human being. Laura, welcome back to the show, and thank you for being the host today when I'm the guest. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I have to say it is, yeah, it's kind of extraordinary. It's a real honor to have you um, ask me to do this. And I haven't forgotten the day that I wandered into a room in, a, in the Bellagio in Las Vegas. That sounds bad, but it was a conference. And... Uh, and heard you speak and I was uh, blown away really. It was incredible and your story is extraordinary. You're, you know what always fascinated me about you from the very first time I heard you talk was uh, your discipline. You you seem to me to have, any, I mean, first of all, you sleep with those glasses on, right? Are you still doing that? <laughs> I do it before I go to bed every night, yeah. Yeah, see that alone. That single fact alone told me so much about you because I'll be honest, you know, I, I believe everything you said in about Bulletproof Coffee and the, the, the lights and all that. And I don't have enough, not even this much discipline in my body in order to keep those glasses on for more than four seconds. <laughs> I, I believe it. It may be, Laura, that you're just less lazy than me. Uh, no. because uh, for me, <laughs> discipline comes from laziness. I just don't want to do extra work. And so if I could do something, even if it takes some amount of effort to do it, as long as it saves me more effort later, I'll do it. So I can just be supremely, uh, unencumbered. <laughs> and so that's my motivation. Well, the other thing that struck me was just how you, uh, boy, how you transformed, uh, your life. And that was really quite impressive and uh, is something that I kind of hope I'm able to do at some point. I think that's really, you set a bar that uh, I aspire to. 
and I'm not, uh, I'm not close to it yet, but maybe this is the book, right? This is it. Is it fasting? This is the way that I'm going to get there. I think it, it might be, I mean, you've, you've done so much incredible stuff and we talked a lot um, in our interview about the, the changes you're making. I, I look at a return on investment for everything that we do and it's not dollars you're investing, it's energy that you're investing. So when I boiled everything down, what's the highest return on investment activity you could do where you put some small amount of energy in, you get a lot back. And I decided to write a book on fasting and intermittent fasting, the spiritual and the, I want to get, I want to go on with life and still get fasting because you can spend less money on breakfast, less time on breakfast, less energy on breakfast and get more energy than you would have had if you had breakfast. So the investment is less than zero and the return is better than you got from what you did before. So it's almost an infinite return because you actually save time and money when you do intermittent fasting. And so maybe that'll appeal, but it's the, the change in your, your mental energy, for me, that's the real win here. And yeah, you, your metabolism works better, you lose weight, you live longer, et cetera, et cetera. But like the first day when you do it right, you should feel better than you did before. And for a lot of people, I, I look back to when I weighed 300 pounds and, and the amount of struggle and effort that was okay. there and, and just pushing. And I feel like intermittent fasting, when you do it right, it offers that. So maybe that is the, the first step. You know, it's kind of extraordinary because when I look at you, I mean, you're one of the healthiest, you're pretty good looking, Dave, let's face it. Oh, I mean, how old are you, you now? How old are you now? Uh, I'm 72. It's, uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm 48. Okay, got me for a second there, just for a very uh, short period of time, because I am quite trusting. <laughs> and I do believe that you're, you're not, you know, going to lie to me. However, hmm, how old are you, Dave? 48. I was going to say, is he really going to dodge this question? No, wow. I wouldn't dodge a question from you. You dig it out of me. You're trained in the art. You know, what's kind of funny about this is that normally, you know, if I'm going to hold someone to answer a question, it's so stressful because the subjects are, you know, I mean, it's a general in a chair, right? And he's right. lying about things that or dodging things that people's lives depend on on a battlefield. But this is kind of like fun dodging where I can hunt you all over the interview. I totally want you to do that. That was why I asked you to do this. I'm like, ask the hard questions. I, I do my best to be an open book. There's no question that I won't answer. Okay. Do you ever cheat? A cheat. Uh, when you say cheat. Well, there's three cheats that I write about in, uh, in the book that let you not experience hunger during a fast. So if I call them hacks, but some people would say it's cheating. If you believe you can only have water during a fast because that's what a mouse had when they did a study, all of those are cheats. But gee, throughout most of human history, people would have tea when they were fasting. So I don't really look at those as cheats. What I have done is I've said, you know, I'm going to fast for three days. And then halfway through the, the um, third day, instead of waiting until dinner, I'm like, you know what? I think I'll break my fast now. But that's the whole thing about fasting. If you did more than, well, really 12, but ideally more than 16 hours, you got some results. And maybe it just wasn't worth it to go 72 hours. So it's not a fail if you said I was going to fast 72 hours and you fasted 57 and a half hours. And then your kids came in and said, Daddy, I made this amazing thing. You should try it. I'm like, okay. But that's not cheating. That's just living. Okay. So then what's a cheat that you didn't write about? Hmm. 
Well, I read a lot about the psychology um, of fasting, where this idea that I'm I'm going to I'm going to not suffer when I do it. But what I didn't write about that I realized I should have is actually gratitude. And I've written about this a lot in my other books, but one of the easy things to do when you're, if you, especially if you're doing a spiritual fast and you're saying, I'm gonna go 24, 48 hours, I'm gonna journal, I'm gonna rest, I'm gonna really feel what I'm feeling and work on that, like I did in the cave. Sitting down saying, I'm grateful that I have a choice <laughs> to fast <laughs> is, is a, a really powerful cheat that I didn't write about. Because there are people, and certainly you've probably seen more of them than most people because of all of the war correspondent reporting you've done. There are people who literally don't have enough food. They're fasting because they don't have a choice. And the fact that we have a choice to fast, when you sit there and be grateful for that, even though you're hungry, it really shifts something inside. And in retrospect, I wish I had thought to include that in the book. That's very interesting. I know exactly, I do know exactly what you mean. Um, having the choice to do that in itself is a luxury. And, uh, and I wonder, you know, you mentioned the cave and I have to say of all the reasons for anyone to read this book, <laughs> the cave is at the top of the list. Oh, thank you. Okay. okay. So, so take us through the cave. Well, I, I've always liked caves. I can't tell you <laughs> why I, I grew up, my parents were uh, co-owners of a small gold mine. This is more common than you'd think in New Mexico. And I spent my childhood exploring old Spanish mines. And it was just something that I did. And there's all this, you know, meditating. and dark underground places, cramped spaces? Apparently I do. I'm not built for it. I'm 6'4". I've hit my head on things. But it's just, I've always liked them. Maybe I'm part vampire. Who knows? But there, there's something kind of magic about the quiet and the dark and all of that. So I, I also said, okay... I know that I'm afraid of being hungry because when I'm hungry, I act like a jerk and I've acted like way too big of a jerk, especially in the first half of my life. Uh, so I just didn't want to feel a sense of lack of control over how I'd respond to things. You know, when you're hungry, you yell at people, you get hangry and all of that. So I said, I'm going to face the fear of being a jerk when I'm hungry. I'm also afraid of being hungry itself because if you don't eat six times a day, you'll go into starvation mode. And I believe that. And I think my body believed that. So there was this like sense of impending doom in my tissues. And then, uh, oh my God, I'm going to act like a jerk if I don't eat something right now. Like give me a, give me a snack. And I had that going on. And I'd also realized that I was afraid of being alone. I, I just wanted people around me. And this isn't a, a rational conscious fear. It's just, you know, I'm uncomfortable and it would lead me to, you know, be in a relationship that wasn't a good relationship for me. And it was just an area of improvement in my life. So I said, okay, vision quest, no food, no people. That would be great. So I looked around to find someone who could lead me on a vision quest. And I found a shaman using Google, which is maybe in retrospect, not the <laughs> ideal way to find a shaman, but Hey, this was in 2008. And uh, I arranged to come to her house outside Sedona and she said, okay, I'm going to take you to a cave and I'm going to drop you off and you're not going to see anyone or, or eat anything. There'll be no food, no people. So for me, my two biggest fears for four days, and if I act like a jerk, what do I need to do? Punch a cave wall? I, I mean, there, there's, there's no one to be impacted by me, you know, losing it if I'm hungry, but there's also no out. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to have to face it. So for me, it was facing those two demons at the same time. 
and you know, seeing what happened. You know, what's uh, extraordinary listening to you is two things uh, struck me. One is how it's never about the thing you think it is with you, right? Not about coffee, is it? It was never about coffee. I, mean, I did want to bring money. coffee with me. <laughs> and so this is about fasting, but it's also not about fasting, right? Because it's not yeah. actually about food in a it, way. It's about going without, and that's really what fasting is. And you can go without junk food. It's a, it's, it's a kind of fasting. So that means you're eating healthier and you can go without carbs, you know, keto diet, you're fasting from carbs. And you can go without anything that you think you need. Even in the book at the end, I, I talk about going without orgasm or ejaculation for a little while because you really have to throw that in there i mean seriously i did have to throw that in there because i tell you as a guy there always comes a time where like if i do not have sex i am going to die and it's that if something i'm going to die it's almost never true and when we allow that feeling from our body to tell us something is true we react and we do things that we shouldn't do and it's about the sense of mastery over measuring what your body tells you and saying is that real or is it a feeling? And if it's a feeling, you can decide if it's real and then you can act in a way that you like better as a result. Okay, so I just want to be clear here. When you feel like you're going to die if you don't have sex, is that real or is that just the feeling? And isn't the feeling real? Well, the feeling is real, but it is not true. So you felt it but it wasn't a reflection of reality. And the reason we feel like we're going to die if we don't have sex is that we're wired in our cells. All, all life is wired to reproduce at any cost, even to, to put our lives at risk to reproduce because the species would end if we didn't have that wiring. So when that wiring steps up, the automated system in your body steps up and says, thou shalt ejaculate. <laughs> even if you say, I'm not going to, at a certain point, you're like, it's the best idea I've ever had in my life. And then I'm going to ejaculate, right? So when you realize, okay, that, that sense, that story from my body, like I have to do this, you know, you won't die, but you feel like you will. And it's that knowing versus feeling and then comparing the feeling. And it's actually, it's awareness and consciousness that you're developing. And if you take a cold shower, it's a brief fast from heat, which tells the body, you better be able to make your own heat. If you can't, up your game. But you put turn that cold shower on, ah, jump out, I'm going to freeze. You're not actually going to freeze to death. It's going to take you a very long time. And if you don't eat, I'm going to starve. I'm starving. I didn't have lunch. No, it takes you two months to starve, right? So those things where it feels like something that's a looming distant threat, but it feels like something really close. And it's true, if you never had sex in your entire life, and there are people who do that, well, the species would end if we all did that. So that's a very odd behavior. Um, so how, when do you actually need it versus when do you feel like you need it? And what you realize is that most of your needs are desires. And that is really liberating. Yes, I understand. And you're right, it is liberating. It actually, what it does, uh, in my experience, is it opens up a world of possibilities that you may not otherwise have been able to take advantage of because you're not limiting yourself by those, uh, those instincts and feelings and needs. And I, I, I'm thinking of uh, being in Afghanistan during the uh, bombing campaign right after 9-11. And, uh, and I remember if I woke up every day thinking about a toilet to sit on or a hot meal, it was harder to get through the day. And at, 
and I, I made a mental note to myself, I'm going to flick a switch and, I, and I'm no longer going to think about what I don't have. And instead, I'm going to think about what I do have, which is that I'm really in the one place in the entire world that I most want to be right now. And so the meal, the food, the bed, the toilet water, you know, all that stuff, the running water, doesn't matter. And I tell my children sometimes when they're really scared or cold or <laughs> tired or whatever it is, I tell them, flick the switch. You can do this. Just flick it. And uh, they look at me like I'm crazy. Pretty much. It, it sounds weird that skipping breakfast can help you flick that switch. But for someone like me, when I weigh 300 pounds, the thought was offensive. Like, what do you mean not eat a meal? Like, do you know what would happen? Right. But all I had to do was know, A, that it was safe to, to flick the switch and that I could do it. And then I realized even if I did that, I was still going to be a wreck that morning. And I had a job and a family and, and things to do. So then how do you flip the switch? And then what are the things you can do so you don't have to push through it, but you still get the, the gradual strengthening of your tissues, which allows you to then more easily flip the switch whenever you want to, because now you have a body and a mind that are more resilient. And I mean, these are hard things to put in a book. It's hard to write about it. In fact, the worst book you could ever do is, I'm going to write a book on how to not eat, which is something that everyone likes to do. <laughs> but it's such an important thing. And make it interesting and make it thing something that people actually want to try, right? I, I'm really hopeful that this helps millions of people try it at least sometimes and to make it painless. And I'm I'm super excited because the the telegraph in the UK is serializing the story from the cave from the book. So over six weeks, they're going to share parts of the book with readers. Uh, because I've never written a book like this. Uh, people who've read it say it's my best one, but I've never told a story like this. And for me as an author, it was it was work to do this. I, I worked with, you know, people who were advising me on how to be a better storyteller. And instead of writing like the Bulletproof Diet, like you have to do this and this and this and this and this, this is more, how do you actually do this one thing with the biggest return? And so if it works and, and people do resonate with it, I want people who are like me who didn't know about biohacking at the beginning um, of my journey in this, people who have a lot of weight to lose who are tired and dragging and sort of saying, okay, I've got my breakfast, I've got my morning snack, I've got my lunch, I'm going to eat healthy right now, I've got my afternoon snack, I've got my dinner, and I've got my evening snack. Okay, I planned it all out, I'm going to be healthy, but they're just so hungry all the time because they're eating the wrong stuff and they're eating too often. I want to free them from what I live through because it's, it's not nice. So, okay, now I have four million questions I want to ask you. And we're definitely going back to the cave. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the science and the biology behind it. Um, but so uh, let me ask you um, just a practical question first for people, um, you know, who hear the word fasting and think, oh, I don't want to do that. Um, what is really and truly the benefit of fasting for a, uh, you know, for different periods, the way you described it, right? You can stop it. You don't have to always do it for this period of time, et cetera, et cetera. What is the actual uh, biological, physiological benefit to your cells if you stop, start, stop, start like that? Right now, when you eat all of the time or you eat most of the time when you're awake, the parts of your body that digest protein are pretty much always working on what's in your stomach. 
when you stop eating, those systems go to work on breaking down old cells or upgrading old cells to make them young again. And it actually removes uh, inflammatory proteins throughout the body and it improves your body's ability to control your blood sugar. So if you regularly intermittent fast, I don't mean every day, I mean three days a week is probably enough for a lot of people. You do that, you're not gonna get type two diabetes. It's that big of a deal. You're not gonna be one of the 42% of Americans who are obese. And if you are obese, without being hungry, this gnawing hunger all the time, without the suffering that every fat person has been through, oh, I lost 20 pounds, I gained 30 pounds. I lost 30 pounds, I gained 40 pounds. I have done this. That won't happen. And what will happen instead is I actually had more energy and less thoughts about food today. Um, that's the the real benefit, but it comes because the cells realize, oh, you mean I'm going to have to be able to survive if there's not food all the time? It's time for a house cleaning. It's time for an upgrade. And the process is called autophagy that happens there. There are also changes in your gut bacteria that are really beneficial. But see, I'm of the generation where we were raised um, in the time of, you know, girls would go on diet and uh, they would starve themselves. And then when they started eating again, they would put on weight. So how do you address that? Is that not true? Well, it doesn't work that way with fasting at all. And here's why it's not true. When you go on a low calorie, low fat diet, the way I did for 18 months working out six days a week and I still didn't lose weight uh, or when I was in my early 20s. Uh, something mean happens, it is torture. And in fact, there are studies of torture <laughs> doing this where it, it makes people crazy and it makes you um, ungrounded and it makes you angry and it makes you tired and you can't remember stuff and you get brain fog, but you, know, you wanna look a certain way, you, you want control over yourself. That happens in part because when you cut calories and use exercise, what I call in the book, SECO, calories in, calories out, it's a very bad model for dieting. What happens is that you have a hunger set point set by a hormone called ghrelin. And that hunger set point is fixed at your fat weight. And you can lose weight via this old fashioned dieting that we we're talking about, you know, eating only lettuce. And let's say that I weighed 300 pounds and I got myself down to 270 pounds. Well, now I stopped dieting, but I have the hunger levels of a 300 pound person. And inevitably over the next two months, I'm still hungry all the time. You're going to eat when you're hungry. Now, if you can raise ketones in the body just a little bit, you don't have to go on a keto diet. In fact, the amount of brain octane or MCT oil that people put in their Bulletproof coffee is usually enough to get their levels of ketones up to 0.5. Normally, if you're on a keto diet, your levels are two or three on a little finger stick. So if it's at 0.5, your body's set point for hunger will change. Your ghrelin sensitivity changes. And all of a sudden, you have the hunger in that case of a 270 pounder instead of a 300 pounder. So changing your set point to your current body weight happens with low levels of ketosis. Now, if you use the fasting hacks in fast this way, you actually okay, I ate an early dinner. I had four hours before bed. I slept for eight hours. I've got 12 hours of fasting. Go another four or six hours, wait till lunch to eat. And if you use the fasting hacks that morning, black coffee, better yet, bulletproof coffee, those two will raise your ketones up enough so that it resets your hunger levels to your current body weight. And the side effect of that is it'll drop ghrelin, which makes you really hungry and think about food all the time. And it'll raise a hormone called CCK or cholecystokinin, 
which makes you feel full. So now, instead of someone puts the donuts out at 10 a.m., look, everybody, I brought donuts today. Normally, when I was heavy, I'd look at those, and go, man, I'm not going to eat a donut today, but the glazed one looks really good. And eventually, you eat half the glazed donut, and you're like, why did I do that? But if instead they put the donuts out, and you go, oh, yeah, donuts are delicious, but I'm not hungry. I just don't want one. And it's very freeing. There's a one of my favorite studies from the book show that 15% of the average person's thoughts are about what's for their next meal. And if you're a heavy person like I was, or you have blood sugar regulation issues, it's probably closer to 30 or 40, 50% of your thoughts. Tacos, donuts, oh, is that candy? And it's just constantly there and it distracts you from your life. Well, if you had a job to do and you had parenting to do while you were doing your job, as is the case for most people now, what if you got those 15% of your thoughts back to do something else? That's really cool, but it has to do with manipulating those two hormones. And just sleeping for eight hours can raise your ketones a little bit. Having that earlier dinner raises it a little bit. Caffeine, the amount in two small cups of coffee, doubles your ketone production. And the MCT oil that's in Bulletproof coffee quadruples ketone production. So suddenly you're up to levels where, yay, my neurons are happy. I have the laser-like focus that people usually fast in a cave for two days to get. I got it the first morning. But most importantly, I didn't think about pizza even once before lunch. And that's been freeing for me. It's fascinating. Of course, you had to choose the day when I had donuts this morning to tell me that story. <laughs> Just rub it in, Dave. Okay, thanks a lot. Seriously, donut days, donut holes. I blame my husband and my children. And then, then now I feel like I'm committing a crime feeding my children donuts. But that doesn't normally happen. It doesn't you know, if it happens every now and then, we can celebrate <laughs> eating junk food. And the magic is when you have a highly resilient metabolism, I can eat donuts if I really want to. And my blood sugar doesn't go crazy. It does go up, but then it goes right back down the way it's supposed to. And I can walk away, except the gluten still messes with me. But, but generally speaking, a flexible metabolism can handle some sugar. It's still not good for you, but it doesn't knock you out. It doesn't make you gain a bunch of weight, and it doesn't make you crave food and turn you into zombie the way it did for me before. So, all right, you, you had some donuts, no problem, as long as you're not paying for them for the next three days, which is what happens when your metabolism is broken. Okay, so now... Uh... Let's go back to the cave for a moment, just because um, it's it's pretty much an extraordinary uh, thing that you did. And to most people, you know, the idea of being without food is one thing, but being without food in the middle of nowhere, alone in a cave, uh, is a whole nother level of crazy. <laughs> Coming from you, that's that's an honor. Okay. <laughs> What I love, though, about that story, and I would totally do that if just to prove to myself that if Dave can do it, I can do it. But, uh, but uh, how long did you, did you do that for? And what happened to you in that cave that you never expected? I did it for four days. And the cave was called First Woman Cave by the local uh, indigenous people. 
uh, outside uh, Sedona. And it's shaped actually like a giant vagina. And in their mythology, this is where Adam and Eve, the equivalent of them, came into the world. So it was, it's a, a sacred place that's been used ceremonially for 10,000 years. And I got permission to be there. a common theme here, Dave, where you're just weaving sex into your I, science. And your, I can't and help it. it. It's just To bring people it, in to the tent. You know, someone had to do it. I'm sorry, the giant vagina cave. Come on. I tell you, I, that was the name of the cave. Uh, and uh, maybe I'm just uh, exercising my strong feminine energy. I have no idea. But I uh, I went there. I didn't know that the cave existed until the shaman told me about it. So, oh, there's these three caves. And that was the one that was just like the right cave to go fast in. And it was very isolated in a in a little canyon and she basically dropped me off at the trail. She said, walk up a mile, it'll be on your right-hand side, you'll see it. Uh, but you know, not a not a tourist destination, we'll put it that way. And I, I was in there and I grew up in the desert. And you know, this is not so common now, but I had my own gun when I was 12 years old, a, a rifle, and I'd walk around every weekend, you know, for miles and, you know, shoot it tin cans and I was okay being in the desert and I've done backpacking and all, but it's still scary when you're alone. And so I'm in the cave. I'm like, okay, I'm going to sleep here, but what about rattlesnakes? They like warm things and you don't want, so I'm on a flat rock. I'm like, this seems pretty safe, but I had dreams about rattlesnakes. I'm like, oh my goodness, are, you know, do I need to worry about this? And there's also a few predators around there. Usually ones I know probably wouldn't really bother me, but I put a bunch of brush outside the cave. So if anything tried to come in, it would wake me up and I could scare it away. And I, I did hear some rustling one night that was, that was really frightening. Uh, and I'm like, what is that? Like, this isn't just in my head. And so I'm turning on the light. I can't see anything. I'm like, God, you know, what are you, what am I going to do here? And finally, I just went back to sleep, but maybe not that well with you know, one eye open. The fortunate thing is when you're fasting for multiple days, you don't need that much sleep. You're just full of energy anyway. And I didn't figure it out till the fourth day that that rustling that had just scared the crap out of me was actually a bird. It was like, oh, look, brush. I'll nest in the brush. It was a nocturnal bird that was coming in and out at night. But I was just losing it. And it kind of made me laugh because you realize your fear response can be really, really high for something that's actually not dangerous because there's the fear of the unknown in this case. And there's also a fear of the known because we believe something. And for me, it was that believing starvation mode was a real thing and that, oh, I'll get fat if I don't eat all the time, which actually doesn't even make sense when you say it. But <laughs> that was, it was a belief. And so most of us today have all kinds of beliefs that, that fuel us with fear and fuel us with hunger or with desire um, that aren't real. The fear is real, but the reality doesn't match the fear. And I dealt with a lot of that stuff. They're like, oh, I'm alone. Oh, look, I'm not dying <laughs> when I'm alone. Uh, I'm actually, I can journal, right? You know, I, I, I can just do what I want. I can just sit with this. And to just show the body, you can do this. Well, for me, I maybe needed the help because I didn't have another option, but just that you can do this and you're still safe. Um, after that, you can always feel safe when you do that because you've shown yourself that it wasn't the threat you thought it was. Fascinating. Um, and so how did you fill your time besides journaling? I would, I tried to meditate and I, I sat there and then as soon as I'd start meditating, these bees would come and like try to land on my face and it was maddening. That's horrible. Right? And, 
Well, it, it turns out uh, you got to love the desert. Don't Everything in the desert. Bees on your face, Dave. No, come on. It wasn't like a beard of bees. It was just a few of them. They're just like, but like flying circles around your head. And it turns out they're called sweat bees and they're attracted to the smell of human sweat. And I didn't know that at the time. Like, why won't they leave me alone? So I'm like, how do I meditate when there's like bugs around my head? And, and it was just so, so much anger about this, even though it's kind of funny in, in retrospect. And I still have no idea whether this is true or not, but another person who fasted in a different cave had the same experience. By the third day, I don't know, maybe my sweat changed or something, but they'd come into the cave and I would meditate after hours of having nothing else to do. And they would leave me alone. Right. And, and, you know, they, they'd come up to me and I'd do something meditatively and then they would back off. I'm like, wow, I'm meditating with bugs who just don't come near me anymore. And as soon as I stop meditating, they'd come in and then I'd meditate and they'd go away. Did I have a remote control for bees? I still don't know for sure, but I think I did. <laughs> That's amazing. I know those sweat bees. They, uh, you know, I've had them around me often, but I, I guess I've never hung around long enough for them to get tired of me. I, I've seen, you know, buzzing insects all the time. You certainly have when you're out in the field, but it, this was very odd because I'd never thought about trying to control them, but I was like, maybe I'll control myself. And I, I feel like when I changed my energy, who knows, maybe I changed the smell of my sweat because I was at peace or maybe I sent magnetic waves out. I, I mean, you, maybe someone can measure it someday, but I don't really know. It's stinky at that point and they didn't like you anymore. Yeah, exactly. I finally developed a, enough BO that I was uh, I was like repelling everything, right? like a skunk. Right? <laughs> the bees were like, okay, this is enough. We can find something better than this. Okay, so tell me what you took with you. I took a sleeping bag, um, a warm fleece, because it was around October, so it can be really warm and sunny or it can be cold in the desert. It's usually cold at night. Um, a lighter, um, a pocket knife, Um a cell phone that I turned on for, you know, one minute to get a, oh, you know, is everything okay? Kind of text message in the morning in case there was an emergency or something. Uh, but it stayed off the rest of the time. Uh, pen, pencil, paper, water, um, and probably sunglasses, I think. That was about it. I mean, I, I had, you know, one change of clothes and, and you know, a bunch of water. And that was, that was what I had. And did you stay in the cave you didn't wander? What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. I did wander on a couple of the days, I went for a really slow walk up the canyon and then I climbed up onto the mesa. And uh, a mesa is kind of like an elevated area in the desert. Uh, so I climbed out of the canyon onto this flat thing. And I went and I sat on the edge of that where you're looking out over you know, multiple canyons, uh, just really beautiful scenery. And you know, we like to think deserts are sparse in areas where there isn't life, but it's just, it's full of life. And something happens when you do a spiritual fast, even for just a day or two, where you're 
your all of your energy that would have gone into digestion and all it's now present in your brain it's present in your body but you feel more connected to the world around you and you sit there and all of a sudden birds are willing to just come and land right next to you which isn't a normal thing for people it isn't a normal thing for me unless i go into a really altered state um so i was in an altered state and you know, I, I was, I would make little um, medicine wheels, you know, you, you take certain kinds of rocks and all, and you make little, uh, you know, little patterns with them, uh, which is a form of meditation. They do things like that with sand, even in Tibet. And it's a, something very common where I grew up in New Mexico, you know, you, you walk out in the desert and you find little stacks of rocks and you find little patterns that are made. I was doing that. And generally just, there's nothing to do, no one to talk to, no distractions at all. So it's really what's going on in my head right now what's going on in my body right now. And just being present with that and nothing else. Uh, so a lot of it was just thinking and feeling. Uh, and then that slow exploration. But when you're going for a walk, you've had no food, especially on the second day of a fast, you rest when you fast. So it's a slow walk. It's a calm walk, just soaking in nature rather than a purposeful walk or I'm going to go, you know, achieve a peak or something like that. It is the opposite of that. Just sort of wandering, letting your mind wander, but watching where it wanders. And, and that's what's not in all the, the common literature. Oh, intermittent fast, because you can go to the gym and it's going to be so good. This, this is the spiritual side of fasting that's really important for personal development. But if I had tried to do what I was doing those days when I was walking around, the same time when we're doing this interview or a, a morning when I'm working and I have constant distractions, you could never get your brain there. But if I'd have been eating, you know, trail mix the whole time, I never would have gotten my brain there. So it's that that rest, peace, and fasting does one thing. And fasting and working does another thing. You get metabolic benefits both ways. But to expect yourself to do the hard fast in the middle of a workday and to do the, the spiritual work and to experience all the pain of a fast when you're only having water, I don't think that's reasonable for most people, especially when you're starting out. And so it's okay to use a hack or a cheat in order to get the metabolic benefits because the stronger the metabolism is, the more equipped you would be to go walk through the desert while you're fasting. I wasn't nearly as metabolically strong as I am now. I had lost a lot of the weight that I had to lose, um, but I wasn't done with developing the whole bulletproof diet. And when I was you know, back in civilization, I very much put butter in my coffee, <laughs> but I didn't have coffee when I was there. Were you uh, ready to gnaw off your arm by the, the time you got to the end of four days with no food? The, th the second day, yes, I was really ravenous. The third day, a lot less so. And then the fourth day, I was just like a ball of fire. I had no hunger. I had so much energy that what I said is, you know what? I, uh, I know that the shaman's going to pick me up, but I think I know where the other cave is. And we're texting. There's barely any signal. My phone's almost out of battery. I'm like, I'll just walk in me. And I ended up climbing the wrong mountain. I'm like, what? what? There's no trail here. So I'm in the middle of the desert. It's, you know, getting to be four o'clock in the afternoon. Sun's getting, you know, a little bit at an angle. You don't want to be out in the desert with only water for your fifth day. And really, we didn't have GPS on phones back then. It wasn't a smartphone. So it's like, hmm. I wonder what's going to happen, but I just had so much energy. I wasn't worried. I'm like, I have enough water for another day if I need it. Uh, so I just uh, was like, oh, I'm on top of this. I see a road over there. I walked to the road, but I probably walked 10 miles on no food, on one canteen of water, and I felt amazing the whole time, and I could have done 10 more. So, so that was, it blew me away. How could my body be capable of this? All this time I thought that those were situations that would kill you, 
But as it was, I, I had way more than enough. And, and that was really liberating for me. I have always had more than enough. I just didn't know it. That's, you know, that's so interesting because what about water and hydration? You know, we get told all the time, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. You can never drink enough water, blah, 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 blah. So, so wasn't, isn't that the thing that you worry about uh, even more than food? In the desert, definitely. You will always die from a lack of water before you'll die from a lack of food. But there's something that's missing from our conversation around fasting and hydration. You know how camels have two humps? Okay. They store water in their humps, right? Except if you were to cut a hump off a camel, which isn't nice, don't do that. All you would find in there is fat. When you metabolize fat in the body, it generates enormous amounts of water. So what the camels are doing with enough water, they go into ketosis and they hydrate their tissues by metabolizing fat to liberate H2O. So I lost 20, 25 pounds during that time. A lot of it was inflammation. A lot of it was water weight, et cetera, et cetera. But because I was definitely in ketosis, I was getting hydrated by fueling myself from fat. And I had enough water in my canteen. I wouldn't want to go two days on one canteen's worth, but you need less water when you're in ketosis. If I'd have been eating trail mix all the time, my water demand would have been much higher than when I wasn't eating, which is totally surprising. It really is surprising. And, you know, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Volta Longo's um, intermittent fasting diet, right? Yes. In fact, I, I cover some of that in the book. So you know that, uh, you know, he was uh, awarded, uh, you know, big grant and, and his work in intermittent fasting has been recognized uh, worldwide. And when I spoke to him, one of the things that he uh, talked about is, you know, he recommends five days, right? Because of all the different things that happen to your body um, over that period of time. How, you know, in day one, it's the it's the shock reaction, right? Oh my goodness, let's hold on to everything. And then, you know, day two is something else. And day three is really kind of the turning point. And once you get into day four and five, you're, you really are now in the uh, realm where you can uh, maximize the benefits of the things that you've mentioned, like uh, cell regeneration and um, all the long-term health benefits that help our bodies reset and regenerate and uh, heal themselves. So how, what, what role did that play in, in your philosophy and in what you recommend here? Well, with Walter Longo's work, he recommends a fasting mimicking diet. So you go five days, but you're eating during that time. And this is something that just enrages the fasting purists. And I, I talk about um, hair shirt fasting. And a hair shirt is something that uh, a sect of monks made, I think, in the 14th century. They would weave a shirt out of human hair because it was extra itchy. And then they would wear it to irritate themselves because they were such sinners that remind themselves of how bad they were. So they were increasing their suffering because suffering is a virtue. And if you were to go on a five-day water fast every month, Okay, that might be really good for you, especially if you're sick, but you need to rest on a water fast. You should be relaxing. You should not be exercising. You should not be doing high cognitive load. And you, you really can't do that. So Walter Longo's work is, well, you can eat some amount of calories that are composed in a certain way, and you're still getting the benefits of fasting. What I'm proposing in fast this way is there are things you can do during an intermittent fast that provide the benefits of fasting without even the amount of hunger and distractions that you would experience then. 
And the science is pretty clear that if you go for 18 hours a day a few times, you get enormous benefits. And you can go 72 hours and you get a lot of benefits from doing that. But the question is, what's the investment versus what's the return? And if I could effortlessly do an 18-hour fast five days in a row uh, and then eat the right stuff the rest of the time, are my benefits going to be very close to a five-day water fast? Probably not very close, but they're going to be close enough that the amount of investment versus return was much higher from intermittent fasting. And I would encourage people who are healthy enough to do it, do a, a three or a five-day fast, but don't start there because if you do that, it's going to be really, really rough and you're going to want to kind of lay on your back and be dizzy and miserable. But once you've done intermittent fasting for a while, you've actually caused your cells to change and become stronger. So when it's time to do your first two-day fast, you finish the fast without feeling like you're going to die. And then you can go to a three-day or a five-day. But it isn't really necessary for most people, unless you're dealing with cancer or advanced diabetes, uh, to go for these long extended fasts. Doing Eating some foods during a fast, there is science behind that. In 2011, I wrote about the Bulletproof intermittent fast, which, or sorry, the Bulletproof protein fast, which is where, oh, you can eat up to 1,000 calories, but you have less than 15 grams of protein. And when you do that, you actually stay in that state of autophagy. So you can eat during a fast and still turn on the metabolic machinery. And when you look at Walter Longo's work for five days of doing something similar to that, you end up at a very similar place as if you've done a longer fast. But the idea here is how much energy, time, and suffering are you willing to put into it to get the results? And for me, the answer is as little as possible because I'd like to put that effort into another part of my life. That's why intermittent fasting is so easy because everyone can do it. And if you do it regularly, but not every day, the long-term benefits of it approach this idea of, oh, I'm going to do a three or a five-day fast every six months or something, which is most mostly that's what most humans can do if they're really committed. It's also very easy to say, I'm going to wait till lunch to eat. It's very intimidating, even for me to say, I'm not going to eat all of next week. So the, the internal resistance, kind of like going to the gym, I was going to go, but I didn't. Well, I was going to do a five-day fast, but I didn't because your body's screaming. You're like, don't do that. Are you nuts? But skipping breakfast, you can do that. And to trick yourself into a 24-hour fast, it's really kind of cool. Like, okay, have an early dinner. And you get your four hours after dinner, eight hours of sleep. And you say, okay, I'm just going to wait till lunch. And then at lunch, you go, oh, if I can just make it till dinner, I'll have done 24 hours. So really, you're sort of saying, oh, I'll have lunch. But you just trick your body only four more hours. So you just feel like you stretched for four instead of stretching for 24. And there's little mind games like that that I write about in Fast This Way that make it easy to do the first time. Like, I just went 24 hours without food. And... It's doable to the point that my son, when he was around, I want to say about nine, um, you know, I'm doing the research and I'm writing the book and we're talking about fasting and he's seen me fast lots of times. And he says, daddy, uh, I want to try fasting. And I said, okay, and you're not allowed to fast regularly because you're too young for that. Like we want your body to get a signal that the world is full of good food and abundance so that you can grow and be as strong as you want to do. But if you want to do it, okay. And he said, I want to do 24 hours without eating anything. I said, okay. And in the morning, I said, well, why don't you have some coffee? Coffee is one of the fasting hacks, and it'll make it a lot easier for you. And he looks at me and goes, no, I don't want it to be easy. I want to show myself I can do it. And he, you know, really, and I did not encourage him even a little bit. I just said, if you want to, you can. And he made it to dinner, right? He was a little bit cranky, a little bit tired, but he was okay. And he ate dinner. He said, yeah, you're right, daddy. 
fasting really is the best spice. Like that was the best food I've ever had. And he hasn't tried fasting since. And he's allowed to skip breakfast if he wants to or eat breakfast if he wants to. But the the idea that, okay, if a nine-year-old under his own motivation can go 24 hours without a fasting hack, I think most people listening to this can get there, but you can start with doing 16 hours with a fasting hack. So it's not jumping off a cliff. It's like putting a toe in the water. And because the fasting hacks remove all of the hypoglybitchy sort of stuff that I really dealt with, you're not going to be yelling at your kids or your boss or anyone else when you start intermittent fasting. You're just going to say, I thought about food less and I felt better. I think I can do this again. And that's what makes it something that everyone in the world can do instead of something that only someone who's you know going to be a gym rat or someone who's really motivated for health. This is less work than picking up an egg McMuffin. And that's why it's work. That's why it's so important. Well, I think just being a, a working mom with three kids living in the country and, you know, and, and having to do most of these for myself, I think I've been accidentally intermittent fasting because the number of times when, you know, I will get to the end of the day and I haven't had a chance to eat anything, haven't had breakfast or lunch, you know, is, is often. So at least now I can tell myself that there's some health benefit to that. There are, as as long as you're not, you know, drinking a diet soda or you're not picking up some sort of a juice, just no sugar, no protein. As long as you're, you're not drinking those things, you're going to be uh, probably better off if you do it some of the time. But if like some moms, you got to the point where I'm just going to do that every day. There's a chapter specifically for women looking at studies of women versus men for fasting. And it's possible to overfast for women and men because you fall into this trap. Well, I actually lost weight and I felt really good when I did intermittent fasting and I did it for 16 hours a day. So I'm going to go to 24 hours a day. I'm only going to have dinner And since it works, I'm just always going to do that. And that's going to be my new habit. And then six weeks later, well, I don't feel hungry during the day, but my sleep quality is gone and my cycle is not regular anymore. And then you do it another two, four weeks and my hair is getting thin. What's going on? But I know that I feel so good when I only have dinner. And the answer for that is sometimes have breakfast. And so you don't have to do it the same way every day. In fact, I encourage everyone to not fast the same length every single day because that also tells the body, oh, you're in a place where there actually isn't enough food because you're only finding it once a day. So sometimes I have lunch, sometimes I have dinner, sometimes I have only lunch, sometimes I go all day. And on weekends, Saturday morning, I'm probably going to have the bacon from our own farm and I'll have it for breakfast. I might even have some carbs with breakfast and it's just fine. I'm not going to have, you know, ice cream and, you know, pie for breakfast, but I am going to to say, hey, buddy, you can handle whatever. And so it's like, okay, sometimes there's a lot of food. Sometimes there's not, I need to be resilient, but I don't need to be afraid and start conserving resources as if there's actually a famine. Women are more susceptible to biological stress from starvation than men are. That's why they hit the wall first. Uh, But with the fasting hacks and with this idea that it's okay to mix it up and sometimes it's okay, have as much food as you want at any time you want today, just don't do it every day. That's what creates the most flexible humans. And I, I just wanted to write it in a readable way in the book so that we can reach people who probably aren't biohackers with this book. there's, There's lots of people who don't even know what biohacking is, Dave. You know, and in fact, just listening to you, you're making me so hungry. <laughs> I'm thinking about thinking about not eating for a week and fasting, and all I want to do is run to the kitchen and just eat everything I can see. 
Well, one of the hacks that's in the book that no one's talked about in the context of fasting is that you can get prebiotic fiber. And I make one for Bulletproof, but there's you know, lots of brands of this. And it's not like a Metamucil thing. This is a kind of fiber that dissolves completely into water. So it's still liquid. It doesn't turn to like glop. And you can put that in your coffee or tea or just even in water. You need 20 or more, ideally 40 grams of this every day if you want to live a long time. Most people don't get enough of it. And if you do get it, you're getting it from eating whole wheat, which comes with a whole host of toxins that probably are worse than the fiber you're getting. And when you get this, it's shown in many studies to turn off hunger. It doesn't raise blood sugar. It contains no protein and it feeds the good bacteria in your gut. So if you think, man, I'm really hungry. Well, you can use that with Bulletproof coffee or without Bulletproof coffee, with coffee or without coffee. You can put it in tea or whatever and you drink it. And all of a sudden, oh, I'm not hungry, right? And if you do the sort of thing that I, I do pretty regularly is I have uh, from Levels Health, um, I have a continuous glucose monitor that will tell me how much energy is in my blood. And if I'm getting this voice man going, God, I'm really hungry right now. And you look down and your blood sugar is 100. Actually, you have plenty of fuel in your body. Therefore, your body's feeling a hunger signal, but it is not based on reality. Because the reality is you can have blood sugar 85 and then that's probably about time to eat. So I had the energy. It was readily available. My body wasn't using it and it told me to eat. It's like, body, why are you telling me to eat? There's a reason for that. And it's usually something else that you ate. And a lot of the time people fail in fasting, they fail in dieting because when they do eat, they eat stuff that makes them profoundly hungry. Like, Have you ever had like a, a low fat dressing on a kale salad? Mm, uh, yes. Have you ever That's, felt full after that? No. In fact, it's kind of like <laughs> fat-free yogurt. Yeah, it makes you more hungry after you eat it than it was before you ate it, right? So and we I, can... It makes you yeah. unhappy. It makes you unhappy. I love, Me too. And you know, like, it, it's like you ate it, but but you didn't really eat it. And so many people now are trained to eat foods because of this ridiculous nutrient density idea. What that says is eat food with no calories in it that has lots of vitamins. And if you follow nutrient density to its logical conclusion, all you should have is water and multivitamins because they're the highest nutrient density, but you'd be hungry all the time. And what I am teaching people to do in fast this way is eat so that you're not hungry. And it means, wow, I never thought that kale is a trigger or maybe it's a nightshade vegetable, or it's a whole grain. But if after you eat, you want to eat again, it just means you did it wrong. And if you wake up in the morning ravenous, I promise you that whatever that barbecue sauce you put on your food last night had MSG or some other thing was there that messed with you. And you end up learning what it's like to feel hunger versus feel a craving. I had never experienced hunger in my life until I started developing Bulletproof, even when I was a raw vegan. It's like, oh, I just, I want to eat. I'm so, you know, I'm so hungry. That that strong urge, that's a craving. The, you know what? I guess I could eat lunch. It's probably about time. That's a different feeling. And then you should eat that because you're hungry? Maybe would be the answer. And if you're actually experiencing huge brain fog and you're saying, I was going to fast, but I feel really awful, eat it's all right. You actually did something really wrong in your last meal. And if you're going to crash and you needed to show up for your meeting, it's okay. You know, have a protein bar 
ideally one with collagen. I know a guy who makes good ones. <laughs> but uh, re regardless, you can break the fast because it wasn't working that day. And then you learn from it instead of saying, oh, I'm such a failure. It wasn't a willpower thing. It never was. It was, wow, I must have done something that really messed with my energy. Let's figure out what that was and let's not do that again. And when you, you learn what to eat, you learn when to eat. When it's time to not eat, it's just effortless. And if you do get some hunger or some craving, you use the three fasting hacks in the book to the point that you have more energy than you did when you had breakfast. And it's getting off that yo-yo of, of eat something that causes a craving that makes it impossible to not eat and then do it again and again and again. And worst of all, when you get those cravings, it's physically stressful. Your body feels anxious. It's like, I need sugar right now to deal with the crap you just put in me and the sugar will help me to oxidize the toxins. Sugar, 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 sugar. And you're probably going to lose that argument with, with your biology because it's, it's pretty strong. And the fact that you do lose that, it's not a failure. It's not a weakness. It's just a sign that you made a mistake, right? And it, it wasn't about desire. It wasn't about moral behavior. It was simply about, wow, I sabotaged myself and I didn't mean to. So I'm going to learn. And when you take that aspect, it's not shameful to break a fast. It's so interesting um, because uh, for so many people, you know, the, the uh, dementia is all around us, um, all the lectures about what you should and shouldn't do. You know, there's so much, there's so much pressure on us. And, uh, and you're right about that intermittent fasting of five days is, is overwhelming. How am I ever going to do that? How can I fast? This is the question so many people will have, how can I fast when I've got to take care of my kids or I've got to uh, go to work or I've got to do all of these things? And you you figured out how to do that. Can you, can you take us uh, through sort of the basic philosophy for people to, you know, have something to hold on to? Well, the, the first thing to do is say, all right, if I eat, if I'm used to having breakfast and a snack in the morning, if tomorrow you say, I'm going to have no breakfast and no snack, you should feel a little bit of anxiety about that because you probably won't feel good. <laughs> You're used to doing this and it's okay to be a little bit anxious about it. So then what you want to do next is you want to say, okay, I am going to do something to take away the stress. And that's why the three fasting hacks from Fast This Way are, are so critical for people who are new to fasting. And a lot of listeners to the show, they've been fasting for years, right? But if it's a morning you wake up, you're going, man, I'm really hungry this morning, but I'm just going to muscle through it. That's a morning where you probably don't want to muscle through it if you had something else to do. So step one, black coffee. Step two, bulletproof coffee. Step three, bulletproof coffee with prebiotic fiber. There is no one on earth I have met who does not feel full and just, just want to push away food after they've had a properly made bulletproof coffee with the prebiotic fiber. There's many studies showing that all of those ingredients actually work to suppress hunger and turn up energy, even though they didn't turn on your normal digestive process. So this is a way of shortcutting that part of the body that's going to make you feel bad. So now you have a tool. And you can use that tool whenever you start fasting. And you'll probably get to a point within a month where you say, you know what, normally I just have a bulletproof coffee, but today I don't even feel like I want that yet. I'm just going to wait till 10 a.m. to have it, right? And you realize, oh, 
I have a different size pants now. They're smaller. This is great. My metabolism is getting stronger. And one day you'll wake up and say, I didn't have time to make my Bulletproof coffee. I just had black coffee. And you know, I, I was a little hungry at 11, but I, I managed it. My mind would have been blown if that ever happened to me when I was working in Silicon Valley, when I was heavy. It was inconceivable that this was a possibility in the universe. And to just say you're going to get there, but you're going to get there without suffering the whole time. And it's the same way towards maintaining this hundred pounds of weight loss that I've, you know, kept off for almost 12, 13, 14, 15 years. I don't know how long it's been a long time, but it's not through dieting. It's not through willpower. It's just through knowing how to do it. So I'm not hungry. I'm not suffering. I'm not doing anything in particular. And it's the effortlessness of improving your metabolism that's so valuable about intermittent fasting. It's just getting started seems scary and it feels bad if you do it with just water. But with these little hacks, it's it's getting into the kiddie pool and you can do it. And if you're experienced in fasting, but you're saying today's gonna be a rough day, look, did you wanna yell at your boss? <laughs> because if it's a rough day, you can do it and maybe showing yourself that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna deal with all this and man it's it's really rough but you know uh, or you could say I'm gonna use a hack to turn off this hunger and then I'm still gonna show up in a different way for my day. That's the that's the gift of knowing the hacks. You know, I I'm reminded now of uh, that same feeling I had listening to you the first time is uh, you just know so much about so many things. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's it's uh, it's really quite extraordinary for, you know, there's still a whole category of people out there who just blast through the day uh, without having uh, any sense of what their glucose level is or, you know, what these triggers are or any of um, the stuff, especially when it comes down to the microbiology. And to me, that's one of the things that you bring to this kind of conversation, Dave, that uh, most people don't bring. How did you uh, get to that part of this? Because you have you have the you know you have the very uh, creative brain. Uh, you have the brain. You know you have that that DNA that takes you into the middle of nowhere to meditate, and you have also that business brain. But then there's this part, which is um, which is the part that uh, that to me is uh, so um, important because it's what makes what you do endure when everybody likes to learn. And, uh, and when you, I learned so much listening to you. Um, and that's the part that um, you capture so well in what you do. Well, Laura, I suffered greatly. <laughs> I didn't just weigh 300 pounds, which sucks. Before I was 30, I, I had such bad brain fog that I bought disability insurance uh, because I, I'm like, I don't know that I would hire myself because I'm having such a hard time with cognitive function. I was in chronic, constant pain. I had arthritis in my knees since I was 14. My back always hurt. I felt like there was a candle burning between my shoulder blades, I had like really intense pain. Uh, and, you know, the, the digestive issues, then I get a lab test when I'm maybe 26, 27 that says, oh, look, you're at very high risk of stroke and heart attack. Uh, you know, your, your blood is coagulating uh, within seconds and, you know, you could basically keel over like you're much older. And 
I'm looking at this going, wait, I've got arthritis, uh, prediabetes, you know, and, and I, I feel like crap. They said chronic fatigue syndrome. I had one doctor who said, Dave, people get well as a functional medicine guy. So people get well when they work with me. You're not responding the way a normal patient does. I don't think you have it, but could you get an HIV test just to rule that out? Because your body isn't working well. And yes, I had toxic mold poisoning, which was uh, uh, one of the underlying factors there. But I had to push harder than almost anyone listening to the show. I went to see a psychiatrist and I said, I want you to do the Daniel Amen brain scan on me to see you know, what's going on um, because I, I'm having a hard time in business school here and I might even fail. And he looked at me like, oh, great. Another one of these you know, Silicon Valley douchebags trying to get Adderall <laughs> so they can get through school. And when he saw my brain scan, I walked back into his office and he said, Dave, you have the best camouflage of anyone I've ever seen. Inside your brain is total chaos. I don't know how you're standing here in front of me. And I'll never forget that. I'm like, he actually believes me, right? I am like, my, my accelerator is just buried in the floor and I'm slowing down. I don't know what to do. So when that's where you are, you will stay up late and you will study and you will experiment because the alternative was just a life of endless suffering. And then I looked around and I realized there are so many people who are where I was and we hide it. We hide it well. People didn't know this, right? But it's, it's endemic. There's so many people feeling that way some of the time or most of the time or all the time. And it's scary because you feel out of control. And my motivation was, okay, I'm a computer hacker. I know how to manage complex systems where I don't. I know how to manipulate a system that I don't own. And you have to be able to use that systems thinking to manage myself. And my doctors weren't doing it. So I stepped up and I did the learning. And people get mad like, well, Dave, what right do you have to write a book or say this stuff? You don't have a medical degree. And the benefit there, Laura, you can't take away my license to be a biohacker. Right, you can take away a doctor's license, and I've had so many doctors privately say, "Dave, thank you for saying this. I can't say that because it puts my livelihood at risk." And now medicine is changing, and doctors are talking about food and nutrition and ketosis and toxins and fasting and all these cool things. They weren't ten years ago. They weren't twenty years ago, and it's becoming safer and more accepted for them to do that. And I'm grateful to have played a role in just helping people understand you have this power, but it really came from, I don't ever want to feel that way again. Like I am not going back. And if I can help even one person not go through what I went through, I will spend hours and hours doing it because it's so bad. <laughs> That's where it comes from. Yeah. And you have that, um, you have that photograph, right. Of yourself in that, in the old days and you are unrecognizable from, uh, the way you look today, um, you wouldn't—you probably wouldn't be here, right? I suspect I would have ended up with uh, MS or lupus or some other advanced autoimmune disease, um, or you know, I, I certainly would have would not have been able to support myself if I'd stayed on this this path, and I wouldn't have had good relationships because I was too big of a jerk. <laughs> One thing that happens when your mitochondria can't make enough energy, you've got to have enough energy to, to fuel your prefrontal cortex so you can catch all the urges that you have. And if you don't have enough energy even to behave the way you expect yourself to behave, how are you going to have enough energy to then do the work of personal development, which is energetically intensive? So what I found is by fixing my food, which is the single biggest lever we have, and including intermittent fasting, 
it gave me enough energy to regulate my emotions. And there's great science supporting everything I'm saying, but it also gave me enough energy to then be able to meditate and to be able to do the other type of stuff that I did in the cave where you're saying, okay, you know, how do you impact the world around you? How do you have a sense of peace, of gratitude and things like that? So you can't separate food and nutrition and cravings and desire and fear from personal development. And what I found is the more I looked at the science, the more I did the work on my biology, the more awareness that I had. And that's okay, go to Tibet, learn meditation from the masters, start a neuroscience company, because those are the next levels that happen after you have abundant energy. And for me, abundant energy is the biggest gift I've ever had, because I did not have this when I was young, it was always dragging. And I don't drag anymore. It's very rare. And if so, I know why. It's, uh, it's really true because when people are tired, right, it's always that thing you say to your kids at the end of the day, you know, when they just can't cope with anything, right? Every problem looks like Mount Everest and, uh, and you, just, you just can't see a way forward. The number of times I've said to my kids, just close your eyes and I promise you it'll be better in the morning. And they, you know, they get, they don't like it. They get annoyed because they think it's not true, but, but it is always better in the morning. And, uh, and you've captured the science of why that is, which is, which is fascinating. I'm thinking guiltily of the uh, magnet on my fridge that says, I'm sorry for all the things I said when I was hangry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that is, um, that's really one of the things that uh, people can learn and understand better in your book, right? That hangry is a real thing, as you've said, and that you uh, you don't have to go that route. You don't have, there are ways, what are your, besides, I know you have the hacks, but what are the, what are the uh, ways that you recommend if you don't have, you know, a bulletproof coffee nearby, um, what can you do? What's your number one way of uh, preventing hangriness? Well, surprisingly, if you get a bad night's sleep, your ability to regulate your blood sugar can go down by as much as 40%. So if you slept well last night, even if you're, you're hungry, you won't get hangry. But if you slept poorly the night before, when you get hungry, you'll get hangry. So focusing on the quality of your sleep is another one of those very high return activities because you were going to lay in bed for six, seven, eight hours, you might as well do a good job of sleeping, right? And if you do that, then you've, you've got the power. And if you start practicing intermittent fasting, on the days when you get hungry, you still won't get hangry because now your cells realize, oh, I have to be strong enough to make power even if there's not food in my stomach and they'll still make power, but they have to be trained to do that. Fascinating. So... And of course, I'm sitting here and I'm on night three of working through the nights. So the first night I had no sleep. The second night I had about an hour tops. And last night I had about three hours. So how am I? <laughs> You're surprisingly I lucid. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, uh, I don't have a choice. I just, I flip the switch and I force it. Yeah. So you're, you're using willpower. And it's possible to increase willpower. And you've always, throughout your life, you've had a superhuman amount of willpower. Like you look at the things you've done. 
um, in your career, like you, you know how to push and, and it's one of your, your just unusual attributes that, that make you who you are. And I also, that, that showing up with a psychologist or the psychiatrist, you know, saying, I don't know how you have this kind of camouflage. I'm like, it's done through sheer force of will. Um, when you find a way to make your cells make more energy, the energy becomes willpower. What powers your will is electricity, the same stuff that's in your iPhone. And you take 30 pounds of air and X amount of food or other energy every day, you combine them and that's the energy. And that energy is your heartbeat, your breath, your emotions, your will, your folding of proteins, your regeneration of your body, everything you speak, everything you say, everything you do, everything you feel. And if there's not enough of that, then you have less willpower. And you've already learned the unusual skill, or maybe you were born with it, of just turning on your willpower. But what I'm saying is, what if we turned on your willpower and you had a higher octane fuel to power your willpower? Wow, you mean there might be another level of willpower or it might take less work. Now to do what you're doing, maybe your accelerator is all the way to the floor. When your metabolism works right, your accelerator is halfway to the floor, but you're still going at the same speed and you know you could tap into more if you needed to. That's how I'm living my life now. And it, it creates a huge sense of peace because I'm not always at 100%. I can be running at 50% and it feels like 200% from 15 years ago. So it's just all about energy. And you need that, uh, that res residual energy, right? For the unexpected things that come in your life, whether it's, you know, whether, uh, whether it's COVID or cancer or even, a, you know, the death of someone, right? I mean, that's, that's where if, if you're on the floor all the time, um, in those moments, you're, you come apart, you can. High performance people run a risk because we have willpower and we're willing to push. And when you're burning the candle at both ends and in the middle, this is when an unexpected thing like a, a viral infection, and I don't mean the current in vogue virus, I mean any kind of thing, Epstein-Barr, you know, any sort of cold flu sort of thing, or you get whiplash, or someone breaks up with you, or a family member dies, or you get a cancer diagnosis, any of those things. It's such a big thing that it, it breaks you. And then you get chronic autoimmune conditions where you start getting Hashimoto's thyroiditis, where your body starts attacking itself. And you really have to look at that. So the idea is how do I be a high performance person who's not always running at 110%? And the way you do that is you turn up the amount of energy you have. So what used to be 110% is now only 70%. And it has been so liberating because you know, we talked earlier, I'm 48. I am healthier now on every measure that I can find than I was when I was 30. I have the, the, the visceral fat levels, the dangerous fat around your organs, a low level for an 18-year-old. <laughs> I have the arterial flexibility of a 24-year-old. I have the neurological response time, like the brain response time of a 20-year-old on average. But as we age, we're supposed to slow down our mental response time according to a graph. And I'm so far off the graph, it doesn't even make sense, except it does make sense because these hacks over time, they give you more raw energy and the body wants to stay young. It wants to do these things, but only if there's enough left over at the end of the day to do that work on yourself. And that's why intermittent fasting, it's such a big return on investment because it teaches the body to make more energy. 
And it's surprising because you're saying go without energy to learn how to make energy. But I think it's a core part of it. I think I'm starting to hate you. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, has anyone warned your wife that you're going to live forever? (laughs) Uh, You know, she is on board with biohacking. She's doing all of it too. So we're going to race. She's... um, She's a little bit older than I am. Uh, so I'm like, good good thing you're a woman because women live longer than men on average. So uh, she has a little bit of a head start on me. And that is one of the things that you talk about um, in your book is the difference between uh, men and women. And tell us about that. Well, women tend to hit the, the wall on fasting before men. And there's some epigenetic and uh, evolutionary biology reasons for this. So if you go back to just a pure animal behavior uh, without all of our you know, human thoughts in there. In just about any species, if there's a woman who's fertile or a female who's fertile, because we're talking about any species, and a male, and they reproduce, okay, the female carries the burden of making an egg if you're a chicken or a baby if you're whatever it is. And it's a huge biological burden. And if in an environment when there's not enough energy, there's not enough nutrients, a woman gets pregnant, it actually puts her life at risk, right? It, it can deplete her entirely. And a woman's body will automatically give everything to the baby. And if you're in an environment without enough, what ends up happening is it seriously weakens the woman oftentimes for many, many, many years. And it makes a baby that's more stressed and less healthy with the lower IQ even, right? So that's why women's hormones, at least I believe that's why women's hormones are more uh, are more finely tuned to energy availability. And if you overfast, you go vegan, you go uh, into unending keto, you get the same kind of results, uh, which is you get a biological stress because the part of your body that says, oh my God, if I get pregnant right now, it's going to be the end of the world. That gets triggered, which raises physiological stress, which increases cortisol. And when you increase cortisol, that's why you start seeing the hormone irregularities, you start seeing the lack of sleep, you start seeing hair loss. And with men, okay, if we don't have enough energy, our swimmers (laughs) are less effective. We actually make lower quality semen and lower quality sperm. But other than that, if we were to get someone pregnant when we're hungry, we don't die. So biologically, we have a little bit more resilience there. Right. And this is one of the reasons that men can oftentimes do five days a week intermittent fasting, even if they're overweight and they manage it. But a woman who's overweight and really working on this with a high stress life, she really might need to start with three days a week until she starts getting her cells more sensitized and starts fixing her biology. And then she goes up to four days a week and five days a week. Women, by and large, who want to intermittent fast five days a week, they oftentimes do better if at least some of those times they use bulletproof coffee because energy availability without eating protein, without eating carbs, it is more relaxing for a woman's biology in order to do that. And this is not to say women are weak and that there aren't women who fast more than men. There are, but it tends to be more disruptive of sleep and hormones in women before it is for men. And it's important to know that most studies on fasting are done on men. In fact, most of them are done on white, young, healthy men because they're free in college. So throughout most of history, it was you know young white dudes in college. So they would be the guinea pigs. 
And now we have more women in college than we have men. And so it's changing with newer studies, but the older studies were generally treating women and men the same, or they were just excluding women and saying, let's just look at men. And we know now Alzheimer's disease is twice as common in women than men. And the rules for fasting are different, which is why I wrote a whole chapter saying, let's look at the one third of available literature that's, that includes women and say, what does that tell us? And what you find is a gentler fasting approach works better. And when you're menstruating, you don't need to fast. Your body already has enough stress. It's rebuilding a part of your body, the lining of your uterus. You probably need some more protein. You probably should have breakfast for a few days. And that's okay. So for a woman starting out, what do you recommend? How many, uh, what is actually effective? The minimum that's going to be effective that you can do for a period of time before you want to you know, graduate to the high school of fasting. I, I like to encourage women to do at least a 14 hour fast for their first fast. Ideally, you're going to get to 16 pretty quickly. And so especially if you have you know, 20 plus pounds and you haven't been exercising much and you're saying, I, I'm going to make a change. It's different than just saying, well, I already exercise five days a week and eat a reasonably healthy diet. I'm you know, pretty much where I want to be. You might be able to just go 16, 18 hours. But let's assume that you're kind of like I was when I weighed 300 pounds and you've got work to do. Well, you're going to start out and you're going to use the fasting hacks and you'll at least do Bulletproof Coffee and you'll do it in the morning. And if you it can only go until 11 instead of noon, fine, eat at 11 and you did it. And then the next day, just eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but eat a better breakfast without carbohydrates. Eat your protein and your fat, and then just notice how hungry are you. Because what's missing for most of us is I don't know when I eat food that makes me profoundly hungry. And you've got to figure out what's causing the hunger. So then one day of a short intermittent fast, then a day of eating and paying attention to, hey, when did I get a craving? And then the next day, doing an intermittent fast again. And maybe do it with, maybe do it without. And what I'm doing with the, the fasting challenge when I'm teaching people the book, this is the first time I've ever been you know, sort of turning on my college teacher mode where I'm going to use the book like a textbook. I'm spending two weeks leading people through this where we're actually going to do a short fast with, with the hacks and work our way up to doing at least a 24-hour fast over the course of two weeks. But it's the starting gentle and not falling into this trap that, oh, I have to do it the same way every day. What you're going to do is three days a week, you're going to do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then the next week, and you'll eat breakfast on the weekend. Then the next week, if it really felt good, maybe you'll do it four days a week. But do not do it seven days a week. It's unnecessary to do that. And at least one day a week, have a nice breakfast. And it's important to do that to tell the body, you know, sometimes there's plenty. For people who want to do the challenge with you, uh, can they do that? And when are you doing yeah. it? It's a, it's a free gift for people buy the book. So you buy the book, you send the receipt in on fastthisway.com. There's a little upload thing there. And then that registers you for the program. And I'm doing three one-hour live Q&As. And then there's a daily video where I'm talking about an aspect of the book and giving you instructions on here's what to do for your fast. You can do it without buying anything at all other than the book. But I will talk about you know, the Bulletproof Coffee Hacks. Or if you don't want to buy the Bulletproof brand, I'll talk about you know here's the closest thing you can do. At a minimum, you can you know, drink whatever coffee and throw a little bit of butter in there. Most people can do that. They already have that on hand. Um, so the idea is it's accessible. You don't need to go out and you know break the bank. But... Um, when you have the right tools, it's easier. 
And I'm just going to teach the things, but more importantly, be able to answer questions. And we should have more than 10,000 people doing this in a community so that we can really support each other and talk about, wow, I didn't realize this was causing my craving. And it's hard. Okay, I'm saying something. People generally believe what I'm saying, but it's still hard to process that. Really, kale causes a craving. But when you look, oh my God, there's 500 people who just commented that it, they, they finally noticed right. that. It right. makes it real. So that's all you have to do, fastthisway.com. So no kale? <laughs> I just want to be clear on that. If if you want kale, at least cook it with some baking soda or some calcium and dump the water. And if you just love kale, you can. But if you try not eating kale and see how hungry you are afterwards and then try eating kale, the vast majority of people are more hungry when they eat it, not less. So it's not a superfood. My husband is going to love this so much because he hates kale. And he said from the beginning, kale is a weed. Look at all these people excited about eating a weed. And he has said many times, it's not a superfood. And of course I just ignored him, but now I'm gonna have to uh, admit that he might have been right. There's Thanks. good science, <laughs> two, good, two good reasons. I mean, kale has oxalic acid that triggers these crystals that, that cause inflammation and it accumulates a toxic metal called thallium. And when you're dealing with any kind of cancer, heavy metals are an issue. And since kale soaks up one of the worst heavy metals, why do you want to eat this stuff again? It doesn't even taste good. So I, use it as a garnish. You know, it's, um, it's, it's really important, uh, these things that you're talking about and that you've written about. Um, I mean, I'm a cancer survivor. I got cancer at 41. And the last thing I want to do is you know be putting myself um you know voluntarily doing things that increase my risk so knowing these things is is important it it is important and it, one of the things that really frustrates me is everyone listening to this is doing their best to sort the bs from reality and to do what's supposed to work I did the same thing when I went to the gym for 18 months straight <laughs> and went on a low fat low calorie diet cuz it's supposed to work right? And it just didn't. And so kale is also supposed to work and it just doesn't. It's tied to kidney stones. It's tied to pain throughout the body. Uh, it's really rough on the gut. And all of those are not good for you. But thallium, the toxic metal there is all kinds of metabolic dysregulation. And as a cancer survivor, you want stronger mitochondria. In fact, fasting is correlated with lower cancer risk. And that means intermittent fasting is even more important for you and eating less sugar and eating very low levels of omega-6 oils are important. Because it, it's amazing. If you were to go out and eat you know, an ice cream dessert and before that have you know, the french fries, which are fried in bad oil, that next morning, man, you are going to have the most severe cravings. Whereas if instead you'd have had something that wasn't fried in bad oil and something that wasn't super high in sugar, you're gonna have a lot less cravings. But it turns out the fried stuff and the high sugar are things that are, are kindling for cancer and things that are lower in sugar and things that have good fats instead of bad fats really lower your risk. And you tie that, that kind of a diet with fasting and you can be um, way more resilient metabolically than most people, whether or not you're a cancer survivor. You know, one of the other big topics that you take on in this book is vitamins and supplements. So many people are, you know, take vitamins. It's a multi-million dollar um, industry. So um, talk, to, talk to me about that. Well, I am a huge fan of supplements. 
And throughout my life, there's been times where I'm saying, oh, I'm going to stop taking them for a little while. And every time I am less healthy than when I do take them. And what we've done throughout history is we take a food and then we process the food. We pound it. We cook it. We do all sorts of things to it. We ferment it. And we do that to remove some of the food toxins to make the food more absorbable. And when you take that to its logical conclusion, oh, I have the supplement that might have four pounds of berries in a tiny supplement because it's just the colored compounds from them. So I'm removing all the stuff I didn't want so I can get more of what I did want. And that's what's going on with supplements. But during a fast, some supplements break a fast. Some supplements will make you throw up during a fast. <laughs> and some supplements make the fast work better. And so I did a lot of research in fast this way to sort those out into the categories. What can you take? One of the magic things you do during a fast is you're using your protein enzymes in order to break down extra junk protein in the body. Well, what if you took extra proteolytic or protein digesting enzymes as a supplement during a fast? You increase your enzymatic capacity so you can do autophagy faster and you can clean up scar tissue in the body. So this is one of those things, yeah, that's worth doing, but you don't have to do it. So sorting out what's going to make you feel good, what's going to work, what's going to block the effects of a fast, and what's going to make you not feel good so that you have a roadmap for which supplements are safe to take, which ones are advisable to take. That's another thing about you. Um most people, including me, actually, chief among them, uh, didn't think there was anything you could do about scar tissue. Oh, you can totally do stuff about scar tissue. It's incredible. So about, oh, we've known this for about 20 years when the first plastic surgeons started doing this. And one of the most common enzymes is called serapeptase. And it's made by silkworms to make silk, um, which is a protein fiber to make it soft. So they figured out how to cause bacteria to make this enzyme and they sort it out. And studies started showing 20 years ago that if you take it after surgery, you get less scar tissue. And when you take higher doses of it on an empty stomach over time, whether or not you're fasting, but it's better during a fast, it will break down internal scarring and external scarring. It'll also break down something called fibrinogen in your blood, which causes you to have sticky blood that can, that can clot. And when you do it over longer periods of time, um, your scars get softer and they get thinner. And all of the scars that I have are, you know, there's still some, like there's one on my elbow from a mountain biking accident when I was a teenager, but it's completely soft. And it used to be this big knobbly, gnarly thing. And it's because when you do that over time, it breaks up even internal adhesions. So, well, fasting alone will help with that. But fasting plus enzymes equals more results, less time. And that's really what I'm all about. Well, yes, that's your business hat coming on there. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Um, but, but you know, what's interesting about that is it's not just a cosmetic thing with scar tissue. Right, because internal scar tissue can be very damaging. I had no idea until uh, I was under such stress. I had a hysterectomy and I couldn't heal. And um, I didn't know that until I ended up in the emergency room. And, you know, uh, my bowel was halfway up my body and all my organs had adhesed together. So they had to be removed and surgically separated. And I mean, two weeks later, I was on a plane to Liberia in the height of the Ebola epidemic, which gave my surgeon a heart attack. You're such a powerful, like willpower driven person. Like <laughs> that's so impressive. 
Well, or just, uh, I don't know, or just crazy, right? Driving a little like crazy, yeah. Smart next to you, Dave. I've got to be honest. You're making much smarter decisions about your longevity and your quality of life than I am. But, but it was really in those, you know, it was in that moment that I began to learn about how damaging scar tissue can be to you internally. Can you, uh, can you speak to that? Yes. Um, this thing called adhesions is a major issue for everyone. And certainly when you have it around your organs, they're meant to move with you. And there's supposed to be space around them. And when they stick together, depending on where it is, it can actually cause bleeding. Sometimes people get so lean, whether they're a vegan or keto, if your body fat goes too low, you can actually have your lung your lung tissue adhere and you can actually bleed out because of an adhesion. But for a lot of people, that chronic pain you have oh, in, in your IT band or your hip flexors or something, it's because the body actually formed a little bit of scar tissue between the fascia, which is this coating. It's a, it carries information, but it's a coating that holds your organs together. It holds your muscles together. And those cause pain. And pain is an electrical phenomenon in the body. It wastes energy and it creates stress. In fact, when there's a lot of pain, you're going to be hungry. <laughs> so taking something that helps you break down this internal scar tissue, doing things, something called visceral massage, which you'd probably benefit from. There's certain kinds of massage that feels really weird. You lay down and they take their hands and like stick them into your abdomen. And you're like, you can't reach under my rib cage. Like, oh, I got your liver. And it's the most weird feeling, but it really helps the organs move naturally. And you can break up the scar tissue and you can digest the scar tissue. Fasting alone helps you to break down your scar tissue, but the enzymes on top of that are a really big deal. How does the fasting help you to break it down? Your pancreas and to a certain extent your liver are making proteins, these enzymes, that can break down and reformulate protein. Normally they make them to break down the steak you ate. <laughs> but when there's no steak... Like, oh, I have enzyme capacity. Let me make different enzymes that I can use to break down scar tissue and perform self-healing. Even the process of autophagy can help to reduce scarring. So that's why fasting is important because your repair capacity is the same as your enzyme capacity. What are your top recommended superfoods? Well, grass-fed, grass-finished beef is absolutely a superfood. And it's got, it, it's the fat that has so many nutrients that are really critical. And it's because our cells are made out of tiny droplets of fat. And when you get undamaged fat that's biologically similar to what we have, your body can build better batteries. It can build better cell membranes. And better cell membranes can express um, insulin receptors through them more easily. And everything works better. Uh, one of my, my favorite experiences around grass-fed meat was I was with a, a friend who's a um, big in the supplements business and his fiance and she was pregnant and he'd said, oh, you have to go on a vegan diet because um, you're pregnant. By the way, that is a way to really stress a woman and create a baby who's just not as strong. And I sat down with him. I said, this is not okay. And so they said, okay, Dave, we believe you. So we went to a restaurant that had grass-fed beef and we got to the grass-fed beef and we put a big hunk of grass-fed butter on top of it. And I'll never forget, she ate like a prisoner. She put an arm in front of the steak like you would in jail and it made the sound like oomph, oomph, oomph. And she just inhaled the steak and you could say afterwards, she was just like, oh, I needed that so much. And my friend looked at me and goes, I think she likes you better than me now, Dave. 
<laughs> but that's the power of grass-fed beef. It's got these nutrients in it. Another one is grass-fed butter. It is very affordable. It's full of fat-based nutrients. Uh, and it's the biologically compatible type of fat that our cells want. 45% of the fat in your brain is saturated fat. It is not corn oil and seed oil and things like that. So getting these precious sources of fat would be there. And another one that is terribly important is collagen protein. And you can get it through eating pig's ears, uh, the way I first okay. had it. That's gross. Not happening. No. Nope. That's I did it because no. in an emergency. So don't eat pig's no. ears. No. Okay, give me something else. Collagen protein powder is how you get it. You can put it in anything you eat. It has no flavor. You can put it on your vegetables. You can blend it into a smoothie. But collagen matters. Don't you don't have to eat the the you know chicken tendons and pig's ears, the traditional sources most people won't eat. But you can get good quality grass-fed collagen. Yes, I made collagen famous, bulletproof mix collagen. Lots of companies have followed that path. But if you include that in your diet for skin, for hair, for proper fascia in the body, it takes seven years to replace half the collagen in your body. If you start eating collagen now, over the next seven years, half of the collagen that your body is replacing will be made with properly created collagen because the building blocks were present. It takes time, but it shows up in your skin, it shows up in your hair, it shows up in your nails, and it shows up in the pain in your joints. It goes away. So collagen seems like a perfect moment to talk about the uh, one of the most critical things that uh, you're addressing in your book, which is what all of this means for longevity, right? And for improving yeah. your quality of life. Yeah. Collagen is one of the ways to do it, but intermittent fasting, even if you never have any collagen to speak of, is a longevity practice. It's a really important one. One of the primary causes of aging is mitochondrial dysfunction. And fasting makes your mitochondria work better. And when they work better, a couple things happen. One, mitochondrial decline itself is one of the seven pillars of aging uh, from my aging book. But when your mitochondria fail, then you don't have enough energy to repair your DNA. You don't have enough energy to repair your cells. And so by propping that up, you stop diabetes from happening because diabetes at its core is an inability of your mitochondria to use sugar to make energy, which is their job. So when you fix that problem, diabetes is the number one risk factor for cancer, for heart disease, and for Alzheimer's disease. So if you dodge diabetes, you're likely not going to die from one of the big four killers. And if you look at the numbers and you're just playing the odds, you're likely going to succumb to one of those. So stop diabetes first. Intermittent fasting is a free way to do that. And it's it's that powerful. Like the return on investment long-term is great, but the most important thing is you felt better today from doing it, which is why I wanted to write the book. Well, and it's extraordinary because uh, the number of people, the number of diabetics that lose limbs, and we just never talk about it, um, yeah. is, is enormous. And if you look, so I live in, in Texas, the um, Hispanic American populations all across uh, South Texas, um, the, the incidence of diabetes is through the roof. I mean, it's, it's really a crippling, crippling um, disease. So, and, and you're right. I mean, uh, the intermittent fasting is, is a freeway uh, that takes you sailing right past that, right? It, it's interesting when you go back to a, a more traditional diet, um, you, you don't get it. And I remember 
Um, there was a time I was a, a much, much younger. My parents' house um, had been destroyed in a flood that destroyed about a thousand houses. And a bunch of guys from Mexico uh, came out and uh, to help uh, on you know, reconstruction. And it, I said, hey, you know what, what can I get you for lunch? You know, I'm going to go into town. And they're like, beef jerky and beer. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> But they didn't want junk food. They wanted beef jerky. Like we just need some protein. There's some carbs in the beer or whatever. They weren't looking at it from a car perspective, but they knew if they had, you know, a can of beer and some protein, they were going to be good. And they, they were working harder than I was, right? And that is a little bit more of a traditional way of eating where oh, I don't need to have that much and I don't need to have something complex, but it wasn't, I want a burger, right? It, it was something different. And I still question whether the beer is, you know, the most optimally healthy thing to do, but if you were to replace that, I'm having some protein, even I'm having traditional foods, you replace it with traditional foods made with American bad seed oils that were never a part of the diet uh, in Central America. And then you go, oh, wait, that's a part of the problem. And then tons of sugar that are present in everything. It's not like in Mexico, you don't need a ton of sugar now too, but diabetes is a problem in Mexico, but it wasn't if you go back a ways. So it's bad oils and excess sugar are creating the problem and it's worse in the US. Many people I've talked to who moved to the US from Central America, like I was fine when I ate this at home, but I come up here and I eat it and I just get fat, right? And it, there's stuff we're doing in, in the US. And if you're going to practice intermittent fasting, or even if you're not, learning to avoid sunflower, corn oil, soybean oil, uh, all of those omega-6 oils, it's critically important. It's been a core part of the Bulletproof recommendations for a decade, but I don't eat processed seed oils ever. If it's in there, like canola oil, you, you just, it's not food anymore. And you don't always know what they're in, right? So If I don't um, know, I don't eat it. <laughs> what I'm saying, so, you know, unless you're reading the ingredients, you might be eating something and have no idea that it has uh, one of those oils in it. What are the, what are the big... Uh, categories to stay away from if you're trying to avoid those oils? If it's fried in a restaurant, it's fried in those oils. Never order a fried thing again. Um, that'll yeah. dramatically lower it. it yeah. I fried bacon? I well, if, fried. well, you can fry your bacon, but bacon itself, they fed the pigs corn and soy. Unless you're getting pastured bacon, it's pretty much the same oil that's in, in the bacon. So bacon is one of those things where if it's from a healthy animal and it's cooked gently, it's really good for you. And it's, it's a soul food uh, for me anyway. But if you uh, were to take crappy bacon from industrial animals and then cook it at high temperature, it's going to be almost as bad for you as corn oil. And so that's that's a quality issue. So bacon is a, is a delicacy and you want to get the best bacon you can get. Wow. So I'm just like in so much trouble at this point. I got zero supplements. I start my day with a Bailey's coffee. My number one health food is a pile <laughs> of bacon. You know, seriously, Dave. We, we've at least got to get you hooked up with some good bacon. Uh, and upgrading your bacon is a major way to make yourself happy as well as to live longer. I'm to the point where I, since we last spoke, I've, my small farm now has pigs. So I make my own bacon from animals that we raise and we're feeding our local community and local health food stores. And our bacon is the most expensive bacon on the planet. You know, there's only 20 pigs and it's expensive to feed them the right food. We do. But everyone who tries the bacon says, I think I just had a religious experience. Um, can I get more? So we're not overcharging for it, but we're charging what it costs to produce it. And it's so different that if I eat a normal piece of bacon, I'm like, oh, that's not right. So 
splurge, order the bacon from a place that does pastured animals and put it in the freezer. And I promise you, your health levels will go up. So you're, um, you know, listening to you makes me think of uh, what if you can't afford it? What if you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, wow, I want to do that. And I want to do that. But, you know, I can't afford bulletproof coffee and I, I can't afford uh, fancy bacon. Um, I don't know what to do here. You know, it's okay. What you can always afford is grass-fed butter. It's $3 for a pound of grass-fed butter. It has more food in it than a Big Mac. It is hugely caloric dense. And if you switch to that instead of corn oil or something, it is more expensive than corn oil, but it's not a lot more expensive. White rice is low in toxins. Eggs, even if they're not organic, are still relatively good for you as long as you're not overcooking them, you know, deep frying them or something like that. So if you were to say, I'm going to eat more eggs, I'm going to have the yolks runny, which is ideal, but certainly not like cooked, overcooked. Uh, and I'm going to, whenever possible, use butter instead of other oils. Uh, and I'm going to get the frozen vegetables when possible. You're going to make a huge difference. And perfection is not required. What about restaurants? Do you, <laughs> you obviously don't go to the taco stand. <laughs> well, the biggest problem with restaurants is most of them serve industrially raised animals. And I would love to tell you, you know, it's the same to eat a cow that ate corn and soy with glyph, uh, glyphosate and has hormone treatments and things, but that is bad for the soil. It's bad for the animal and it's bad for the humans who eat them. It, it's not okay. So when you go to a restaurant, um, my restaurants, the Bulletproof Cafe, it's only grass-fed and it's reasonably priced, but it's not as cheap as a Taco Bell. There's no way to do that. I'm opening a restaurant here under my offices in Victoria, British Columbia as well, which is going to, we're raising the animals that go straight to the restaurant to make it more affordable. But what, what you do at a restaurant is you say, okay, what's the least toxic thing on the menu? And it's usually vegetables. And you could say, no, don't fry the vegetables. You could say, cook them in butter instead of whatever other oil you were going to use. It's not going to be grass-fed butter, but it's still going to be butter and it's going to be better. So veggies with butter is a great thing to order at a restaurant. And rice is usually better than potatoes. It's hard to put stuff in rice that doesn't belong there. And then you watch out for whatever kind of sauces they like to put on it. The sauces usually have MSG, even if it's not labeled. They'll look you in the eye and say, there's no MSG in there. It's because on the label, it says, you know, vegetable protein. Well, it's 74% MSG, but by law, you don't have to call it MSG. And that MSG causes profound cravings to the point that restaurants know that when they add that stuff to their food, the average spend at the restaurant goes up by 30% because you're going to buy dessert and you're going to buy an extra Coke. It's that big of a difference. And you got to be careful on this, the sauces, careful on the type of meat. And so what you end up doing is saying, do you have like a, a big salad or a plate of vegetables? And then you watch out for the salad dressing itself. And most people won't probably do this. Uh, when I go out, I'm like, give me the olive oil and I want real olive oil that's not cut with canola oil uh, and give me half an avocado. Yes, I'll pay you two bucks for the half an avocado. And then put that on the salad, I'll eat that. And then I'll eat something later <laughs> because I'm not willing to eat a lot of restaurant food. Oh my goodness, Dave, you really make me laugh. I just I just imagine taking uh, going into some of the places around where I live in the country in Texas and saying, uh, I'll have the uh, olive oil, please. You know, there are times when it's just not going to be at the restaurant. So then you're saying, look, you know, cook my veggies in butter. And almost anyone will do that for you and say, give me some rice. 
right? And that's manageable. And you're saying, but there was no protein in there, Dave. No, you can have protein later. You don't have to have protein with every meal. And it's that idea of, oh, going without. So for me, I go there, I oftentimes will order fish because fish tends to be cleaner, especially if they have any kind of wild caught fish. But even then you're going to spend, you know, 12 bucks and up. And if you had five bucks to spend at the restaurant, spend it on the veggies and the butter. What about your restaurant? Tell us about that. Well, the Bulletproof Cafe down in Santa Monica has been open for six years and I managed to save it during the pandemic. You know, we're doing deliveries. It's always been only grass-fed meat and it's always been based on the Bulletproof principles, which are how you feel after you eat is most important. You shouldn't feel hungry. You should feel elated. And then it's based on how does it taste and then how convenient is it? And then what's its impact on the world? And then how much does it cost? And so we're doing our best to balance all of those things out to make it affordable. And it is quite affordable compared to a lot of places in LA, but it's not as affordable as Chipotle, but it's much higher quality. And it's had a, a cult following for any restaurant to stay open for six years, especially in LA is very hard to do. And it's, it's going strong and I'm opening more of them because the idea that people care about the quality of their meat, they care about how they feel. People will spend 20% more on a meal if they know they'll feel good afterwards. And that's the standard. Well, it's at least better to, to if you're going to spend money on eating out, to know that you're doing something good for yourself, right? Compared yep. to going to a fancy restaurant where, uh, where you're not going to get any of that benefit and it's going to cost a lot more money. It's true. And, and it's also true. The fancier the restaurant, the more likely they'll do what you want, right? And we're talking counter service at the Bulletproof Cafe. I'm like, how do I do this so I can make it affordable? And I can have white white linen tablecloths and serve the same stuff and it would cost an extra $15 a plate. I didn't think that was the right move. I want people to actually be able to take it home and have it for dinner. Like it, it's important, but we're, we're talking, you know, wild caught salmon, grass fed meat. And people say, I can't afford grass fed meat. But if you buy 25 pounds of ground grass fed meat and put it in a freezer, it doesn't cost more than organic meat for sure. And you can get it at affordable prices. You just have to plan ahead. But if you want to go to the store and pick it up whenever you want to pick it up, it's quite expensive. So most people who decide they're going to go bulletproof, especially on a budget with a family, they end up finding a local rancher who raises cows and saying, can I buy a quarter of a cow? And then it's like $6 a pound. It's within reason. Okay, you've left out the most important part of anyone's diet alcohol. <laughs> While I am a big fan of chocolate, which will come as no surprise considering my other vices, uh, you know, come on, Dave, come on. Don't, don't tell me to do just the straight vodka with the soda because that's... Well, here's the deal. Drink alcohol older than you are and you can have whatever you want. So the point there is make it a special treat, drink higher quality. And if you like wine, um, French wine is almost always cleaner, any European wine, but especially French is almost always cleaner than American wines. And to my friends who own vineyards, I'm sorry. The studies show that <laughs> you in now California- have more friends there. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few friends who are like, what are you saying here? Um, all California wine, even the organic stuff, tests high in glyphosate because California has allowed the entire state to be coated in this herbicide that causes harm to your mitochondria. So it's in the water, it's in the soil, it's everywhere. And we need to stop doing that right now. In fact, in Europe, there's massive lawsuits over this. And 
so right now, if you if you drink an American wine, the standards for mold toxins, which also cause intense cravings, and the, the, oftentimes you feel stiff and groggy the next morning, it wasn't the wine, it was the toxins from fermentation. The standards in the US allow way higher levels than European levels, which is why you drink you know, a $25 bottle of French wine, it's very different how you feel the next morning than if you drink a $25 bottle of American wine or if you drink a $10 bottle of any wine. <laughs> so that's why drink less, but make it nicer. Well, and you know, the older I get, the more expensive that, that those drinks are getting day. That's Thanks. by design. You should have less alcohol as you age because it's actually something that makes you age. It's It's just not good for you. But when you do take it, um, certainly it'll break a fast. And when you do have alcohol, have activated charcoal with it, have glutathione, have vitamin C, and this will reduce a lot of the aging parts of it. But if you drink and you're measuring your sleep, even one drink with dinner, it means that night's sleep wasn't very good. So I'll still have a drink like maybe once a month, the day when I'm feeling great, you want to celebrate with friends, I'm going to drink something really nice and I'll have a drink or two. Um, but I would, uh, I frankly, I'd rather have more coffee, more chocolate, uh, and other things that actually have a bigger upside for me uh, than alcohol, even though alcohol is enjoyable. Dave, you said once a month. <laughs> once a month, Dave. Hey, I, I was able to take a 12-pack down in college like anyone else, and I certainly had my share of tequila and things like that. But no, I find that if I drink um, you know, four or five nights a week, even if it's one drink, my sleep quality goes down and down and my brain doesn't work as well. And you can look at brain scans of people who have a glass of wine a night and their brain metabolism isn't the same. It, it, it changes you. And so I like it, uh, but when I do it, I'm, I'm careful about it. And with the anti-aging stuff I've done, I actually can function very well on a glass of alcohol every night. But if I do it for a month and I did that, what, a year and a half ago? Like I, I like sake. I'm just going to have really good sake every night for a month. End of the month, my sleep was crap and I didn't feel as good. And I was a little bit puffier and my joints were a little bit stiff. It's just not good for you. It's really, uh, it, it really sucks when you know all these things because you have an answer for, you have an answer for everything, but you're just, do you have, I mean, you're breaking down everything. When you look at the human body, you're seeing how everything connects. Well, there's, I've seen an, an estimate that we think we know about 8% of what's going on in the human body. So there's so much we don't know. And there's this whole realm of peptides and signaling molecules and systems and networks in the body. What I do know is what works because we've measured it. People have lost a million pounds on the Bulletproof diet at this point. And why it works, we think we know. And we find intriguing new evidence or we find evidence, oh, no one's ever tried that. Let's try that and see if it works. But some of the stuff that we know works now, someone in 1900 figured out that it worked and they made up a story and said, here's the science behind why it works. But their science was totally wrong, but it still worked. They just but, knew that it worked. They probably yeah. lacked the tools to figure it out, right? And sometimes with skeptics, they go, that, uh, tell me the mechanism of why that works. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And I'll say, oh, leprechauns. And they go, what? What do you mean? I go, oh, the mechanism, it's leprechauns. And, and they say, you're full of, you know, you're ridiculous. What do you say? I'm saying it doesn't matter if you know the mechanism. We think we know the mechanism, but we might be wrong. But what we do know is if you do A, you get B. But between A and B, there may be, there's quantum fairies involved that no one's seen yet. I don't know, but we think it's because of these pathways, but we're probably wrong. And, and so to understand the pathways helps us know what else we might be able to do to, to be lazier so we can get more results in less time, which is what makes me happy. 
when you uh, when you embarked on this journey, you touched on this that it was really much further outside the realm of what we are used to um, hearing and talking about. Right? We will Western medicine was pretty much the only thing um, that was around, and you uh, and you do have the skeptics. What do you think is the is there a weakness in uh, in your philosophy and in your science? Is there um, is there something that that bothers you that you're not quite happy with or not resolved with? Is there uh, a criticism that stings or that you know has stuck and you're kind of you know eradicate it, work it out, figure it out? Well, one of them is that you know this is more expensive than eating junk food. Right? And it's a fair criticism. And the solution for that is something I'm really working hard on. And right now, for the first time ever, and to me, this is uh, one, of the, one of the biggest achievements of, of Bulletproof is that uh, last year, we went into 200 7-Elevens. It was an experiment to see if anyone would buy health food at 7-Eleven. And we were the first company of several that they tested where they rolled us out to 1,000 7-Elevens. So what has to happen here is we must redefine what is food as a species. And when we do that, I promise you that your grass-fed butter, your grass-fed collagen will be what you eat because it works better and because it's abundantly available because we built a world where you can have it. But if we insist on putting blinders on that say you have to eat six times a day, you have to eat junk food, whole grains and corn syrup are good for you, artificial flavors work just fine, all of those are lies. They're convenient economically. So my job is to raise awareness and to make it so it's affordable and available. And the only way to do that is to teach people this is what you're supposed to feel like. And you have to eat this to feel that way. When the demand for this goes up, the supply will go up. I was one of the biggest and loudest voices saying grass-fed matters. And over the 10 years since I started Bulletproof, if you go to Whole Foods and you go to the dairy case, find a yogurt that's not grass-fed. I think that I played a role in that. And that is a big part of the mission here. It's why I'm focusing on writing books, on the podcast, on all these things, because awareness drives demand, which drives supply. The big companies, if you go to, you know, I'm not going to pick on, on Campbell's soup specifically, but if they get the message loud and clear that I want grass-fed cream of asparagus soup, when enough people say I won't buy the other stuff, they'll get the canola oil out and they'll put the grass fed in and that'll mean healthier soil and it'll mean more cows that are treated properly and it'll echo throughout the world that we live in. And that's why I do what I do. And, and that's the biggest concern is I want it to be more affordable than it is now, even though it's better now than it was 10 years ago. Uh, and you, you know, you talk about industrial fed animals and offer very sound uh, reasoning and science uh, behind the issues there. But industrialization came about because of the need uh, to scale, right? No. So how do you address, no? <laughs> how do you address scale without destroying what it is that you, the value in what you're trying to give people? I look at this as a, as an internet engineering, I'm, I'm a king of scale. I spent 10 years of my life learning how to scale systems beyond belief. And we used to think many years ago, if you want, make a computer faster, you need a bigger computer. And that's called a mainframe. And it's going to cost millions of dollars and it's centralized. And then guys like me figured out, hey, what if we just had a whole bunch of cheap computers and we put them all over the place? What would happen? Well, the people who are making these, you know, 
million hogs at a time, hog farms that destroy the environment around them and treat the animals like crap. They're the mainframes. They haven't figured out that we have plenty of land in order to raise animals in a scalable way, but it will be decentralized. And decentralization means that everyone who's involved in the process wins. Centralization means that big companies win and they can treat animals like crap and they can make stuff that's not even food and spend money to tell us it's food. So what we are going to do is we're going to decentralize food production. And we have plenty of capacity, especially in the U.S. of all countries, to feed everyone and then some. But it requires spreading out the animal poop so we can have soil everywhere so we don't have another dust bowl. Like these are big species survival things, Laura. We have... 60 years of topsoil left on the planet and we're depleting it because of our crappy centralized agriculture. I live and run a 30 live on and run a 32 acre farm and our soil our, and our soil gets thicker every year because we're doing it right. So we need animals to make soil and we need animals to be a part of the ecosystem and we don't have to be mean to them. We have plenty of people on the planet who would farm and could farm and they would feed their local community instead of feeding a big industrial company somewhere. That's the answer for this. How would they do that in a city where you've got, you know, massive number of people and they don't even have a, a yard, let alone, you know, uh, a place to farm? If you live in a city, if all of the food around the city is produced by smaller farmers who might have 50 head of cattle or 20 pigs the way I do, what you end up with is you buy from a smaller thing. We already have a name for it. It's called a farmer's market. Right? Yes. And, and for real, we do. And you can go and you actually save money. And you know who wins on that? The small farmer makes a living. Right now, 90% of small farmers have a day job. And then they go try to make money on the farm, but they don't get paid very well because they sell at a very low price to a distributor who then marks it up, who sells it at a grocery store, and then the grocery store marks it up. And some progressive grocery stores are now buying directly from farmers, right? But that system makes your food terribly expensive and terribly low quality. What, what I do, I don't raise cows because I don't have enough space for it. So I buy a cow from my neighbor who grows cows. And it's amazing. The quality is through the roof. And I spend less than if I went to the local grocery store and did it. And everyone can do this, right? You can go to the farmer's market on Saturday morning. There's one in every city. And, and it's possible. It's already possible. And the future looks like food everywhere where there's land instead of food centralized in this one state where you can't drink the water anymore because of all the nitrates from all the pig manure. We, we can't do this. It's not okay. It's interesting um, that you say this at a moment when uh, there really is a big movement against uh, beef and against eating meat. And I wonder um, how you've been treated by the, uh, you know, beyond meat lobby. <laughs> well, they haven't actually said anything bad about me, uh, but I might have said, I've never said something bad about the people there, but look, fake food that's designed to taste a certain way, but has the nutritional benefits of junk food is still junk food. And you can make food that's based on potatoes and grains taste like candy, and you can make it taste like beef. It will still be metabolized like junk food. So the idea that eating less meat is good for the planet is complete BS because not all meat is the same. 
if you eat grass-fed meat that regenerates our soil, you get a different result personally and on the planet. And what you'll always see in the propaganda that's mostly led by animal rights movements and by people trying to sell you more grains, they will tell you, oh, it takes X amount of grain and X amount of land and water to raise a cow because they don't apparently know that you can have grass-fed cows that consume a lot less water and build soil that then holds more water in it. So they say red and processed meat as if they're the same thing. And they say fruit and veg as if they're the same thing. No, fruits and vegetables are different things. Red meat is one thing if it's industrial. Red meat is another thing if it's grass-fed. And it's another thing if it's processed. And anytime anyone says red and processed meat, they're saying, they're talking crap. They're flapping their gums. They're not saying words that have meaning. And having been a raw vegan, a, a dedicated focused, I can soak and blend like everyone else. A plant-based diet makes people sick. It makes weak children. It makes infertility. It makes joint pain. It does not work. And the people who think it works for them are usually under 25 and they're burning out their biology and they will become bulletproof or they will become very sick. I might have just fallen in love with you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the answer. Uh, to a plant-based diet that I've really been looking for. And I've been a vegetarian most of my life. I eat a little bit of meat, but you know, I'm not like some, uh, a meat freak, but what I do, uh, what I do know because I grew up in Africa is that there are people all over the world who know that cows eat grass. (laughs) They really do. (laughs) They really do. They really do. And when you see uh, you, when you see people like Oxford University come out with studies that say we need to save the planet, put a tax on meat, a third of the population globally will die. But what price are you willing to pay to save the planet? Those are not our only options. They're not at all. It's decentralization of meat and treating the animals properly. And here's what a tax on meat does. It increases obesity in poor people because they can only afford crappy plant foods at that point. And meat is necessary. You don't have to eat it every day. You don't have to eat as much as people eat, but you better make it grass-fed or don't eat it at all. And a tax on meat is a terrible idea. It's a regressive tax. And it's it's just, it's so well-established. You take people, you feed them soy protein instead of meat. They do not thrive. It cannot work. It does not work biologically. It doesn't work scientifically. But worst of all, the millions of acres of corn and soy have no life on them. But if they're prairies, there's a lot of life. There's an ecosystem and the soil builds itself. So you can say, oh, this is great, but you're pushing a problem onto our kids, which is millions of acres of soil that's destroyed so we could eat soy burgers. Like what kind of a world is that? Well, and interestingly, the the small family farms that you um, are a big fan of, right there in California, they're being um, they're being regulated into extinction, By and they're about, to be, they're about to be taxed into extinction because under under Biden or the new administration's um, you know green plan, there's going to be a methane tax if you are a farmer with uh, 800 cows, your methane tax bill that you're about to have added to all your other costs is $1.8 million. This is the most absurd, short-sighted thing that I can possibly come up with because cows that eat grass don't make as much methane as cows that eat the bad stuff. 
right? And this is part of a long tradition of crowding out small farmers so that the big mega companies who control food production can take them over. And many of the large, the largest um, chicken and turkey processing plants, they've now corralled and they control the people who make chicken. They can't even make chicken the right way anymore. I raise chickens and turkeys on my small farm. And it takes nine months for a heritage breed bird to mature. They can do it in two months, but the meat's like cardboard. It doesn't have nutrients in it. And the animals are genetically engineered to fall over because their breasts are so big and they're tortured in small buildings. It's not okay. So it's not good for people. It's the wrong fat. It's the wrong everything. And the birds that I have, they walk around, they they eat um, worms. The eggs are incredibly nutritious. And the birds actually are contributing to nitrogen in the soil. You have to have them if you want to have crops that grow. So the idea they're going to say, oh, small farmers can't do any of this stuff and we're going to have rigorous control. What's going to happen is, well, gee, isn't the U.S. the fattest country on the planet? The methane tax will just make people fatter. And I, uh, I, I am not looking forward to the few people who can afford to remain in California. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to like it. I, I miss California. I love California, but I've been gone for a while because it's getting it's getting to the point where when you do something that's good for your community, um, the state makes it harder for you to do it. Well, you know, this really, uh, this really reminds me of something uh, very powerful to me. Growing up in Africa, the thing that I saw all over Africa was people uh, would be small farmers and... Um, and they would eat healthily. And even when people couldn't afford uh, a toothbrush or a trip to the dentist, somehow they always had beautiful teeth. And not to say that it was perfect, um, but if you go to Africa today, many parts of it uh, where I spent time uh, in Southern Africa, do you know what you find uh, people doing now? Those small farmers have been replaced with mechanized technology-based farming courtesy of foundations like the gates foundation and uh now those traditional methods of farming and and having your cows eat grass and do things like that um have been uh replaced and in exchange the farmers have to farm genetically modified seeds yep and of course, you get all of the problems that come with those. If you believe that people are meat robots, <laughs> then you treat people and the world a certain way. And if you believe that people have a right to feel good and to do things in a way that incorporates our, our ancestral heritage in a way that creates a healthy environment versus something that extracts the most from the environment as quickly as possible, you, you change your behavior. And I want there to be huge numbers of small farmers everywhere because it's part of being a good steward of the earth. And we can make it so it's a great way to have sustainability, to have an income for your family. You're probably not going to get rich on a small farm, but you'll eat better than anyone else. I know I'm on a small farm and I have the best food on the planet because I grew it myself. And people come to eat and like, I want that. And it's an incredible luxury for me to be able to do this, but it shouldn't be. It should be to the point where we can do that. My prediction, Laura, is that 20 years ago, everyone wanted a house on a golf course. 
the future is different. The future is I want a house surrounding an organic farm that uses permaculture. And part of my homeowners association fees doesn't go to keeping the golf course. It goes to making sure that the food production for my community is as good as it can be. And you get a part of the food that grows in the farm that you live near. And this is sustainable. It'll work. And it's what the future is going to be. The people who can afford to be near a farm will be on one. And the people who can't afford it will pay more money to get food from farms that grow quality food instead of grow junk food. And the forces trying to make us all eat junk food, they will lose. And they will lose because people don't like to feel like crap. We're tired of being tired. We're tired of being fat. And we're tired of not being in control of even how we think. Bad food steals your brain. And so I, I think fasting is a part of this. But also when you break your fast, eating the right food. And when someone says, I'm going to make a tax, someone says, I'm going to change policy to prevent your access to nutritional supplements, to quality food, to grass-fed animals, your right to grow whatever you want in your backyard. Any of those things is an assault on basic human decency and it's not okay. That's, uh, that's one of the things uh, that you have done consistently with your business, with your books, with this book, is that you're giving people real uh, solutions. There are real things that they can do to address this. You're not just exposing something that says, okay, this is what's wrong with what, the way you're living, or this is, you know, this is bad and, and you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, this is your gift, isn't it? This is the thing that you want to do that's most important to oh. you in your life is that you want to give, give this to people. It, it's easy to say something should be done. It's harder to say, here's what to do and here's how to get there. And that's my job is to figure that out and, and paint that picture of the future the way it, it is meant to be and then provide us the stepping stones and the tools to get there. And we can build a system that feeds everyone in the world, makes more soil, not less. Soil is the biggest carbon sink we have and gets us out of the spiral that we're in right now. And the first thing that makes this work is that when you do what I'm talking about, you feel better right away. And feeling good is so precious that you will fight for that feeling and you will do what is necessary. And you'll walk to, an, or you'll drive to an extra store that has what the food that you want. And you won't spend your money on food that's not food. And when there is no demand for garbage, no matter how much marketing you put behind it, they will stop making garbage food. And they'll start making food that's good for everyone and will recognize that quality food is a basic human right, not just any food. So interesting. I remember my mother was a crazy Italian chef and she always used to say, I don't know why when people make cook for large numbers, they destroy the food. There's no reason to do that. That's the same <laughs> philosophy, right? That's what you're saying. It's hard to cook for large numbers of people. The restaurant operation stuff that I had to learn, even just at the Bulletproof Cafe, it's different. I mean, it's so convenient to cut corners and to buy cheap oils and all that, but you don't do it. And some of the companies I'm investing in, some of the companies I'm advising, we're working actively on solving the problem because when we acknowledge what the human body needs, we can use technology to do this. There's a company out there that is going to replace soybean and corn and sunflower oil with an oil that's 10 times healthier and costs 25% as much. I'm supporting those guys and I'm supporting some other ones. I don't know if I'm allowed to say their name because it's all you know pre-launch and all, but this is going to happen. So if we acknowledge, oh, grass-fed beef is a template for something that's good for us, 
maybe someone can make a plant that makes the same kind of protein and fats. But if we keep telling ourselves the lie that junk food, omega-6 oils are actually good for us, we'll just keep making junk food. So let's make it cost effectively. Let's support technology. Let's let farmers use technology. But the end goal has to be the human condition and it has to be supporting the planet. It can't be just making money for a few companies that basically regulated everyone else out of existence. That future won't hold. Well, it's interesting because the same philosophy, we have to save the planet, is advanced to say by Beyond Meat. And no one is talking about the fact that we don't actually know what's in Beyond Meat. <laughs> right? We don't. You know, um, there's Impossible Burger, there's Beyond Meat. They have a list of uh, a list of ingredients on there. But there's a lot going on around, okay, where are you getting your potatoes? And is potato farming on land that never sees animal poop actually sustainable? No, it's not. And the fact that you're paying more for that than grass-fed meat quite often, certainly on a per-calorie basis, yikes. It's not good for you. It doesn't taste very good, but it tastes better than you know a tofurkey or something. Uh, but it's not about taste. Food is about how you feel, and then it's about taste. And I promise you, if you eat a fake burger of any brand, afterwards, you will be more hungry and less focused than if you eat a real burger from a cow that ate real grass. And that's just how it works. You know, I guess the proof that of what you're saying is in the fact that when we were growing up, there was one kind of lettuce in your salad, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was it. And there were no, uh, there were no substitutes. And if you look um, over time, how much that has changed, um, you can see that it really is true that if people, what, what people want en masse, corporations and companies will produce because that's what's going to make them the money. It's totally true. And if we demand junk food, it'll happen. I've been blessed to meet with the CEOs of the largest packaged foods companies in the world. Uh, and all of them, and sometimes the entire senior executive team, and all of them say the same thing. We'd like to make healthier food. You know, we, we don't want to make food that isn't healthy. Most of them have convinced themselves that what they're doing is healthy, even though they know it isn't on some level. But they say, if we do anything that raises our cost by half a cent, some other company comes in and makes a, a junk food, and it's a little bit cheaper, and people will buy it. So my job and our job, everyone listening to this show, it's your job, is to explain that how you feel is worth the extra half a cent. And that the sacrifice you make to say, oh, I'm going to eat the cheapest possible food um, because um, all food is the same, that's wrong. Eating the food that makes you feel the best is worth a little bit more. And that's all it should cost. And once everyone does it, it won't cost any more than junk food. Yes, getting to that point is the key, right? Because I tell you, Dave, where, where I live, uh, there are a lot of people who are working two jobs, and by the time they get to Friday, they can't feed their kids. And yeah. um, you know, in when you're uh, when you're at, at that level, that margin, it uh, spending a little more on healthy food is is not even an option. You know, if if you're really running out. Then it comes down to making the best choices with what you've got and saying, okay, I'm going to eat a loaf of bread versus a bag of rice. Rice is actually cheaper than pre-made bread on a calories basis. It's not that hard to cook rice. And if you were to make that change, you just got rid of a bunch of anti-nutrients in your food. 
And if you can swing instead of spending, you know, a dollar eighty nine on the the basically the margarine, and you instead say I'm going to spend two seventy nine or two ninety nine on grass fed butter, the difference in how your kids behave, the difference in your cravings, will be much better. And you're probably still saying, oh, I'm going to buy a bag of chips. A bag of chips is a terrible idea because it's full of bad oils. It has almost no food in it. It's almost all air. It, it looks cheap, but on a per calorie basis, it's expensive. And it makes you profoundly hungry, so you'll eat more. So you start saying, I'm going to take my limited budget. I'm going to buy food that actually fills me up. Right? And I'm going to buy food that doesn't take long to cook, but I am going to cook it. And you save money versus even fast food. And yeah. it's possible to do it. I have to confess, though, that I really love junk food. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I try to be good. I love vegetables. I love healthy food, too. But ice cream, uh, no, no ice cream, Dave. Well, it turns out ice cream isn't that bad. Okay, milk protein, man, milk protein from industrial milk is really pretty darn inflammatory and addictive. But if you were to eat ice cream versus say a junk pastry, you'll have less of a glycemic response. Your blood sugar won't go up as high. At least you're getting some saturated fat in there. So if you were to eat ice cream, at least make it with sugar instead of corn syrup. And if it's organic, bonus points, but it starts getting expensive to buy organic ice cream. But if you were to do that, you're better off than a lot of other more sugary desserts. Have you spoken to the French about, about what you're saying on pastries? <laughs> no croissant? No if, you, if you go to France and you buy a croissant, it's going to be made with real butter, probably grass-fed. And you're going to have a very different response to it because it's also using different yeast and it's using different wheat that doesn't have glyphosate sprayed on it. Most people who feel like crap eating gluten in the US can go to Europe and they can enjoy a croissant. Um, last time I was in London for the Health Optimization Summit, I ate several croissants that had been made with grass-fed butter and they were delicious. And I didn't have all of the problems I have in the US. You eat those every day, you're going to get fat. You eat those on occasion. It's all about what goes into the food. So it was a long time ago when you went to that cave and you've been fasting for uh, many years now. Yep. And you've written a number of books. What made you write this book in this moment? When I wrote The Bulletproof Diet, I put all of the steps in it that you've got to do. And it included intermittent fasting, included cyclical keto, avoiding toxins in food. And a lot of people read it and like, it's just too much. And I thought, what is the one thing that has the highest return? <laughs> it was me. I confess, I drank all the Bulletproof coffee you gave me, that you sent to me. And I read the book and I was like, I can't do this. It was right, the so fasting got me that actually, I thought fasting, how am I going to fast? But now maybe I have the solution. The idea is to break it down into easy steps. This is the most accessible book I've written. There's plenty of science in there, but it's also like, here's step one, here's step two. And making it easy and making it accessible is necessary. So my, my whole project for the next five, 10 years is to take all of the knowledge that's out there and it, in the bulletproof language, it's changed how we talk about health. It's changed. Can you upgrade yourself? Can you have control of your biology? Can you hack your health? Like those are original bulletproofexecutive.com things when no one would say those things because you weren't allowed to do that because you would be a bad person if you admitted you wanted control of your own biology. So we've shifted how we think about this. But now how do we take the steps, the ones that, that provide the most value 
in the least amount of time. And this is a book about one of those things with the steps for I've never done this before. So this for me is a big departure, but it's based on 10 years of knowledge and people losing a million pounds and you know, lots of change in the world that came from the knowledge that that was in those first those first blog posts and those first books. A scientist once told me that the the greatest weakness of all research, whatever field, uh, is time. Because we we make decisions about things and we change our behavior and we sell things, you know, based on uh, on studies, right? Um, but we don't know what they do over time. How, how do you respond to that? Well, I once asked Craig Venter. Craig's the guy, the first guy to sequence his own human genome at a cost of $100 million. And I said, Craig, after 20 years of looking at the human genome and billions of dollars spent, can you give me one piece of actionable advice that I can share with Bulletproof Radio listeners based on all of this knowledge? Or should we all wait around and keep having pizza and beer until more research is completed? And he looked at me on stage and he said, let's talk about it over pizza and beer. And what's happening in science is a travesty because every research paper written about a new breakthrough in our understanding of biology or health or nutrition ends with the statement, but more research is needed before you do anything because we're afraid we might be wrong. But let's look at the alternative. Okay. 42% of Americans are obese. Most people have chronic health problems. We're getting sicker, not better. So can the state of research now say, you know what, based on what we've learned in this paper, the most likely positive outcome is to go north or east or whatever the direction it says. We might change our course as we learn more, but let's evolve and change over time instead of waiting until perfection happens because in science, you will never have perfection. So it should be pointing us always. And instead what we've done, we just say, we're not gonna move at all until we're, we're certain I just want greater than 50% likelihood because right now I have 100% likelihood of ending my life in diapers, not knowing my own name if I do what everyone else is doing. Mm, horrible. That's a terrifying thought. So how has your uh, research held up over time? What's held up and what, what hasn't? What have, you, what have you changed? It's held up fantastically well. And one of the things I talked about that drove me nuts, why do you have to blend Bulletproof coffee? Why can't I eat a stick of butter and drink a cup of coffee? I know it doesn't work and it makes me mad that it doesn't work. Um, but I said, you have to blend it. And I've always said that. Well, I funded some research at the University of Washington a couple of years ago, and they did research on basic water chemistry and how it interacts with fat. And they found, hey, if you have tiny droplets of butter fat, it changes the structure of water to make something called exclusion zone water that you can see on a microscope. This is not you know, crystal fairy water. And it makes the biggest zone we've ever seen. And now we have a scientific explanation for why Tibetans make yak butter tea instead of eating yak butter and drinking tea, why Bulletproof Coffee works. We didn't have the science, but I knew it worked. And five years after I launched Brain Octane Oil, I said, this works better than MCT oil and it works better than coconut oil. Well, research came out of UC San Diego that said, oh, look, the one Dave's using is four times more ketogenic than the other ones. Like, oh, I didn't have the science, but we could measure results you can see and feel the difference. 
And the, I was one of the very early proponents of using a keto diet. The science has really come a long way, especially in regards to cancer and things like that. I've been an early proponent of fasting and huge amounts of science have come out for that. Five, six years ago, I started a circadian biology company looking at sleep with the glasses, the true dark. Since then, enormous numbers of papers have come out supporting how important that is, even especially the kind of color frequencies that go beyond blocking blue we've done. So I tend to be ahead of the curve. Um, one of the areas where I think I, I, I was wrong is with my very first book, The Better Baby Book, about what do you do before and during pregnancy to have smarter and healthier kids. At the time, all of the science out there said, don't feed your kids peanuts, it's bad for them. And since then, a woman from Stanford University, a researcher who wrote The End of Food Allergy, a book I just recently interviewed her, she's proven conclusively that giving children small amounts of allergens when they're relatively young reduces lifelong allergies. This just wasn't known. And so if I was to rewrite that book now, I'd say, by the way, you should take the little little powder that they make that has a mix of all sorts of bad stuff in it and give a little bit to your kids so they'll be more resilient. I was just wrong on that one because I'm like, everything we know says don't feed it to them because it's bad for so many people. But it turns out feeding trace amounts is important. And so overall, I would say my directional accuracy has been really, really good. And I'm always happy to figure out where I'm, where I'm wrong. I was an early advocate for grass-fed and more and more evidence is coming out. Most recently, the levels of amyloid in crowded condition industrial animals is another issue on top of all the other toxins. That research didn't exist. Amyloid is a toxic buildup of protein. It's associated with Alzheimer's disease. With Alzheimer's disease, amyloid plaques in the brain are one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's. But amyloids throughout the tissues are a hallmark of aging. It turns out you eat an industrial chicken, you eat an industrial cow, you get high levels of this and high levels of bad fats and high levels of hormones and antibiotics and, and glyphosate and all the other stuff and stress hormones from the animals themselves. So the grass-fed thing was right, but some of the reasons that it was right, we didn't know about. You make me feel like I'm poisoning my children. I'm going to run to my kitchen and I'm going to empty the refrigerator. I'm going to tear everything out of the pantry. You don't have to do that. What you can do, though, is you can just make better decisions. I don't do everything perfectly. What I want to do, though, is I want to define this is the direction we want to go. So you have a choice of two things at the supermarket. Neither one's perfect. Choose the one that's better, that's affordable, right? It, it's incremental. We are highly resilient, highly capable beings. And if we do intermittent fasting, our resilience goes up. So, hey, you really wanted the pasta? You did your intermittent fasting? Have the pasta. It's better off than if you had the pasta without intermittent fasting. You're still moving in the right direction. So this kind of, you know, it's like all or nothing perfectionism, it doesn't serve people. And what I want to do is define, this is the, this is everything you could do. Do 30% of them and you're probably going to live a lot longer and feel a lot better. And maybe you'll do 50% because you feel so good along the way. But if no one identifies what they are, then we don't have a roadmap of where to go. Well, this is very true. It's just, this is very true. At least you're, you're giving people things that they can begin with. And, and you're right. If that's, if that's the one thing that you do, you've done one more thing that you uh, weren't doing. So what do you, what's your weakness, Dave? Come on. What's your advice? Um, what's my advice? Well, uh, right now I would say um, nicotine is an anti-aging drug. It reverses Alzheimer's disease in studies since 1987. And I've talked about the ideal um, like the ideal way to use nicotine to not get Alzheimer's and to mimic exercise in the body. 
And it's one to four milligrams of nicotine a day oral. It's not eating tobacco. It's not smoking. Those are bad for you and terrible, but small doses of this are very powerful cognitive enhancers. But when I interview people, I really like the way my brain works on nicotine. So I find that on days when I have like four podcasts, I'm kind of exceeding that four milligram limit that I'm talking about. And is that advice? Maybe. Does it make my brain work better? Does it make me happy? Yeah. Uh, Is it bad for me? Maybe, maybe not. But I probably could lay off the nicotine on days when I have like four interviews, but I like it and I'm okay with that. I have this mental image of you with your four million little bottles taking all your supplements and, you know, every day and like uh, ruling the world. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a lot of supplements I take every day. I know what each of them does. And a lot of people don't know this, Laura. I don't talk about that much. I don't take the same ones every day. When I travel, I often do because it's easier. But I'll reach for something. And just like if, if you have cows or like the sheep on my property, they walk around and they go, oh, I want a bite of that tree. I want a bite of that, but they're choosing on a second by second basis what's best for them, right? Well, I do the same thing with my supplements. I'm like, you know what? I, I don't want that one today. I, I just, I feel like it's just not the one. So I, I go with intuition and I have a set of things that I take, some things I take almost every day and some things I take most days, but days when I just don't feel like it, nah, I don't do it. So mixing even those up, it's the same way as it, mixing up your style of intermittent fasting don't give your body the same things every day. And I do that with supplements, but I do sit there with my bottles in the morning and decide what, it, what am I going to do today? What do you take? That would be a 10 hour episode. <laughs> and I knew it. I knew what, it. I, what I don't do is publish a whole list of everything I take in part because I'm always running experiments and in part because I'm a 300 or I was a 300 pound guy. I'm a 200, 210 pound guy. And I'm 6'4", okay, I'm a guy, <laughs> and I have a history of autoimmunity, and I'm 48. So if someone who weighs 110 pounds and is 23 and is a woman says, I'm going to do what Dave does, she's probably not going to like what happens. And so what I want to do is say, look, your genetics are different. You have a different age, different lifestyle, different propensities, different weaknesses. And let me talk about the ones that work best for most people and where you should start. And then let me talk about the more advanced ones. Like this year, I've added in uh, something called spermidine, which is something I've wanted to take for years because it's such a powerful anti-aging compound. You can only get it from this weird um, bacteria that you could buy from Japan. And it's an amino acid that's strongly detoxing. It actually mimics fasting when you take it, but you couldn't buy it. And about four months ago, it became available in the US. So I've added this to my stack. I just did a podcast. I want it. About it. I want it, Dave. Where can I get it? Okay. Spermidinelife.com slash Dave is probably the place to go. And I think there's a, a coupon code when you use the slash Dave. But this is something where it's, it's you know, a couple of pills a day, but it profound anti-aging benefits. So I'm like, okay, I'm taking this every day or at least most days um, for the rest of my life because I already did the research. I wrote about it. I just couldn't buy it. It was $200 for a tiny vial. And I'm taking something else called Urolithin A, which is something I did a recent podcast about. 10 years of research from one company went into figuring out how to make this. And it's the stuff that pomegranates, when you eat them, if you are lucky enough to have the right bacteria in your gut, you convert it into a little bit of this precious anti-aging compound, or you can just buy the compound itself. That's what I'm doing. So these are recent additions, right? But if I was to go through the list of 150 it'd be a conversation of, well, why do you do this and who should take it, who shouldn't take it? And what I've done now, 
What? Wait, I do 150. 150. Okay. Yep. 150. On a, on a day when I take most things, sure. Good Lord above. I don't even, uh, I, how do you have the time to do that? It takes about five minutes. <laughs> Wake up, do my meditation, journal a little bit, <laughs> sit down at the vitamin table, <laughs> da, 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 and it's all done. You realize that, like, I mean, you're hitting like every category that's like, out i mean meditation not a chance you're not getting me there okay uh four million supplements and time to take them uh sleeping eight or nine hours i really smiled when you said that one that was just i sleep less. six and a half hours that's what i do um that's all i one need drink a month i mean my you know and i'm not even a big drinker <laughs> i'm a terrible drinker i don't I, you know, I, I can be sick for three days if I have too much to drink. I think last time I interviewed you, you had a couple glasses of wine for the interview, which made it really fun. <laughs> that was a setup. I think you <laughs> sent them to me. If I recall right, there was a knock on the door just before we started. And it was, I might yes, have. yes, maybe. Well, well, I, uh, I really, um, love talking to you because it's just you have moral courage dave um you have the courage that everybody sees but more than that you have moral courage and it's so rare and also you're consistent which i think is a most underrated quality and um and that thing that you're working on that big thing where you want to make this affordable and you want to get this to where it can uh reach people that is, uh, people talk a lot about noble goals these days and very few of them mean it and even less actually live it, but you are living it. And, um, and that's impressive. And I, I've always uh, been envious of your uh, strategic brain because that's really a, a skill that you have, have uh, blended very well with what you produce and, and what you create and how you share that. So uh, you you are a pioneer um, and a revolutionary, um, well, in, in in your way and in your field, and um, and this is a thing that affects every single one of us, and uh, and for anyone who thinks I'm just you know blowing smoke um, to sell your book <laughs> or to get people to listen or buy the supplements, really. Um, I'm not just take a look at what the, the the headlines of your book, the the you know the crib notes, right? Um, are from the very beginning, the first thing is that this isn't about food. That fasting isn't just about food, and uh, and that is a perfect example, right? Um, of you challenging uh, the narratives and challenging our preconceptions, and um, but you do it uh, for something that is real, and you do it for something that actually uh, holds up to uh, closer inspection. So I would um, encourage uh, everybody to approach this with an open mind, right? We don't need to convince anybody. Here you have it, you bared your soul and um, people can make up their own minds. And I am, I'm definitely going to go back to Bulletproof Coffee because I stopped when I ran out. <laughs> I, I just sent you more, just tell me. I promise. Okay, tell my spirit animal to send me more. She knows who she is. All right. <laughs> Yes. And, um, and I'm going to try fasting. I'm going to do it because this fasting I can do, even I can do. And, yeah. and I love food. Okay. So let's finish on one final thought from you. 
the one thing you didn't talk about, you say that food is not about taste, it's how you feel. And when you grow up in a big Italian family, and like I did, food makes us feel loved. Mm. Food is home. Food is part of sharing and being and everything wonderful about life. How does fasting fit into that? It goes back to what my son said when he finished his fast. He said, Daddy, fast is the best spice ever because this food never tasted so good. And when you go for a brief period of time without food, and then you sit down and your mom makes you your favorite food, it tastes even better than it did before. Now, it's not about never having food. It's about going without it so your body can get about doing its business and make you stronger. So that when you sit down and you have that meal, you actually show up in a different way for the meal. And you'll have enough energy to do the dishes with your mom afterwards. <laughs> I'm definitely going to encourage that in my house. Thank you so much. Laura, thank you for turning the tables on me and being such an amazing journalist and an amazing interviewer. Thank you so much. I can talk to you forever. (laughs) (laughs) The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.